Welcome to the Wander Learn Podcast. This is Francis Tapon, and in this episode, I'll be interviewing Travis of the Extra Pack of Peanuts. This guy has the number one travel podcast out there. He has an incredible amount of subscribers, and yet he's always on one side of the microphone. He's the guy doing the interviews. And so this time I turn the tables and I get to ask him about his background. How does he pick the countries he goes to? And then he's starting this product called Jetto. It's an app, a travel app, which is quite interesting that you should definitely find out about. How does he monetize apps? How does he monetize his own podcast? And talks about how it was like to live in Japan. He has a frequent flyer boot camp. Uh, he talks about what's the best credit cards to use. We talk about Africans. Uh, it's just an incredible wide ranging uh, conversation. It's fascinating. The guy has so much enthusiasm. I love him to death. Enjoy this podcast with Travis Sherry. Welcome to the Wonder Learn podcast. This is Francis Tafon. I'm here with Travis Sherry. Uh, you run the Extra Pack of Peanuts website and podcast, which is the number one travel podcast out there, isn't it? It is. I like to talk. So I think that's why the podcast took off more than the site, maybe. <laughs> so we'll get we'll get into all the, the ins and out of travel podcasting since I'm just getting started into this and you are the expert of all experts on this. But I first want to give people a little bit of background about who you are. You're married to Heather. I know that. And you've got a little creature that you've just created recently, haven't you? We do. He's, I guess you could say an angel or a monster, depending on the day, maybe the minute. <laughs> um, but we have a six month old right now. His name's Whitaker. And um, that's certainly been the biggest news recently because we were, you know, we've been traveling around the world, kind of doing our own thing. And obviously that has changed a bit now, you know, and we get all the time we get people saying, oh, well, I guess, you know, God, you traveled back when you did because now it's over. And I look at him and I think <laughs> like, you're the same person who told me it was over when I was, you know, 21 and getting a job. You know, there's always a reason that it's over to people who aren't doing it. Right. And I said, no, this is this is great. This gives me more of a reason. Like, let's let's go back to places that we've been already to see it through his eyes, you know, and things like that. So. Yeah, that's that's the family unit right now. There's three of us, and we'll be popping around the world. As soon as we get his passport, Francis, here's a quick little uh, anecdote for you. We he got um, we got his birth certificate, you know, uh, three weeks after he was born, what have you, and we were spelled his name with two T's for Whitaker, and it came back with one T. And so we thought, oh, no, we, you know, we want to get his passport. We wanted to go traveling, and we thought, all right, is it worth keeping his name with one T for the rest of his life so that we can get his passport sooner? Or do we go through the whole <laughs> process of changing his birth certificate? We ultimately decided, because like it's a family name, it's my mom's maiden name, to change it to two Ts. And now six weeks later, we're still waiting for his birth certificate to come back. Hence why we are still here in America and we haven't gone anywhere international because he doesn't have his passport yet. So government red tape, man, you know? <laughs> Um, I'll give you another anecdote. When I was born, actually, my birth certificate said Andrew Francis Tapon. So my m first name was Andrew and my middle name was Francis. And if, a little bit after I was born, my mom had kind of buyer's remorse on my name, my Andrew name, because she realized that Americans like to truncate names and basically want everybody's going to be starting to call me Andy. And she doesn't like the sound of Andy. <laughs> so she promptly swapped the name. So now my middle name is Andrew and my first name is Francis. But she, being from Chile, didn't really think through the implications of what that would do to my initials, Francis Andrew Tapon. <laughs>
There you go. Well, I think you're far from fat, so I think you're, you, you're <laughs> fine with that, right? Uh, fortunately for you, I guess, you weren't probably the chubby kid anyway, so you were probably running around <laughs> climbing mountains at the age of one, so I'm sure you kept that exactly, weight on. Exactly, right. <laughs> I climbed mountains before I knew how to walk. That's right, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so your Uruguay and Slovenia was your, your two favorite countries, and you've kind of checked off Slovenia on your list, and it did live up to your expectations? Yeah, it certainly did. I am... Um, for whatever reason, you know, I think when we think about travel, everyone has these destinations in their mind that take a hold of them. And for me, when I was younger, it was, I guess, maybe typical East Coast American. I don't I don't know. It seems typical to me. It was like Ireland and England and Spain, like the I don't know, things that I guess I knew people had been to. And they held that, you know, I probably read books about them. But as I started traveling like those, I went to those places and they were really neat and fun. But then I started thinking a little further afield. And for whatever reason, I don't know how Uruguay got into my brain. I think I just, you know, it was down there. It was kind of hidden. You know, people always talk about Argentina and Chile and, of course, Brazil. So for me, I think I saw it and I was like, that's a bit of an underdog. Let me kind of look into it. And it looked really neat. So I still have not been there. But Slovenia was similar in that a buddy of mine who had traveled all around the world and his parents, like when I was a kid, we didn't travel internationally much. We did a decent amount of domestic traveling, but you know, we weren't going far flung places, but he was. And so he was kind of the one friend in elementary and middle school who was, you know, the traveling kid, I guess you would call it. And he was telling me stories about Eastern Europe and all these places. And I, I just remember him saying something, saying like Ljubljana. And I'm like, what are you even talking about? Like, you know, it's obviously hard to pronounce and even harder to spell. And he was telling me about Lake Bled and there was a there was a church in the middle of this lake on an island. And I remember looking it up. This is probably when I was like in my in my 20s then thinking, wow, this is this is like exactly like he described to me maybe 10 years ago when I when I first heard of Slovenia. So that was really high on my list. And uh, we actually just went there last year and I absolutely loved it. I mean, for a country the size of New Jersey, if you guys are listening from the US, I mean, it's, it's the size of New Jersey, you know how small New Jersey is. Um, I think it probably punches or it does punch well above its weight for a country that small to have gorgeous mountains and beautiful lakes and a cool little, I guess, postage stamp sized uh, capital in Ljubljana. So I loved it. We spent seven days there. I would go and spend a lot longer there. Um, it lived up to the expectations, which sometimes I think doesn't happen, right, Francis? Like you build something in your head too much, and then all of a sudden you go, and it might be cool, but you're a little worried that it's not as cool as you think. For me, Slovenia was as great as I as I had built it up to be, which was which was a nice. Surprise. So you'll find out. You got to go to. When is your plan for your Uruguay? Uh, you know, we held off on South America. We've been planning for a couple years to go there, but we held off on the whole region. And we we're not big like we're not people who are scared of traveling or anything like that. But because of Zika and because we were trying to get pregnant for so long, and it was this whole process, we were like, you know, there's probably a very small chance something happens. But it'd be kind of stupid for us if something did because we can go anywhere. So let's let's kind of wait till we get past that. Um, so that's kind of that's kind of what put a nix on us for the last three years. And again, I don't know how big the Zika thing really is, you know, obviously there's a lot of stuff in the media or was a lot of stuff in the media about it. So now we're, now we're ready to go. Now we got the green light, man. Uh, we'll take the little guy down there. So probably this coming winter, like probably to switch seasons when it gets 
nasty and cold here in the U.S., especially in Philadelphia. Um, we're probably going to head down to Central America a little bit, and you got to believe if I'm there, I'll probably at least just get a flight down to Uruguay to at least at least go see it, right? Yeah, absolutely. No, I've and I'm embarrassed because I haven't been there either. I've been to about five South American countries. I've been to every Central American country, but not Uruguay. So you're going to have to tell me all about it. One day I'd like to go there, but. My mom is from Chile. It seems I've been to Chile like a dozen times, but Uruguay has just not been on the on the well. Well, maybe we get, itinerary. Yeah, we get a book. Maybe it's called like the Hidden South America, and you do like Uruguay, <laughs> Paraguay, like um, yeah. you know, all the ones up around the corner from Venezuela, like the ones that people. The, the hidden ones, Guinea, the ones that, yeah. French Guinea, yeah. Called. I can't even remember yeah. half of them, right? But all the Suriname, Suriname. There you go. All those ones. You you only need like six countries in South America, but you could do the hidden South America, man. Yeah, no, that's good. <laughs> and speaking of that, uh, there's for me the same country. And when I was thinking about Africa, where I've spent the last five years, is Togo and Comoros did for me what Uruguay and Slovenia did for you, okay. because Togo and Comoros are like these you know, what the fuck countries you never hear <laughs> right. about them ever. And so it's like, they're never in the news. Do they even exist? So to me, I would, they, I was so intrigued by Togo and, and, and Comoros, but I didn't have high expectations at all for them. I just figured, well, you know, they're probably nothing special, but I'm just dying of curiosity to find out anything about them. What about your twin sister? Does she travel a lot? She does. I, I have actually one in Africa. I hope we get to this. There's one in Africa that's this funny one that I want to visit. We'll, we'll get to that in a second because you've been there, obviously, since you've hit all of them. But I want to know your opinion on this tiny little country. But um, to my sister, yes, yeah, she does. I have a twin sister, um, and she actually just finished up uh, being a missionary in Spain. So she lived in Spain for five years, and she lived in, uh, in Santiago de Compostela, which I know you know well and have been through. And uh, right there at the at the end of the Camino. So she lived there for, yeah, it was five years running like a, it's not a guest house because people couldn't stay overnight, but I guess what you would call like a, a welcome center, maybe like a pilgrim center, a place for people to go when they were finished and and kind of do, do laundry and hang out. And they had like art rooms and music rooms, like people, like a reflection center almost. Wow. So she was there for five years. She traveled quite a bit from there. And she actually just moved back to the States in the last couple months. So she's she's also a traveler. Um, she's lived a, lived abroad longer than I ever lived abroad because I was in Japan for two years and, and like Switzerland for half a year. So, yeah, she's been quite a few places. And it's funny because, like I said, growing up, we didn't travel a lot. We went down to Florida a lot to visit my grandparents. We didn't even like I had never been to California um, before I was 28. So we certainly didn't come like it wasn't instilled in us by my parents and not that they don't enjoy traveling. Now they're both getting ready to retire and they've traveled to see her and traveled to see me in Japan. We've taken them to Thailand and Cambodia. So it wasn't that they were against it. It just wasn't, you know, it just wasn't something that they did. So it is kind of interesting that her and I both got bit with this travel bug and I'm not even sure where or, or why it happened, but, um, she, she gets out there. She's been to New Zealand, which I've never been to. And she's she came and visited me in Japan. So I don't know how many countries she's been to, but she certainly has made her way around as well. That's fascinating. So you guys, I guess you really are related. I guess so. It's that whole twin thing. People ask us, like, are you guys similar? <laughs> and I'm, we're actually not very similar at all. <laughs> uh, we, we get along really well, but she's much quieter, much more introverted. I'm, I'm not either of those and uh right. but but we do share similarities like when you dig a little deeper like you said like this whole idea of traveling and 
um, kind of looking at life as something that isn't like, hey, let's work towards retirement. Like she's willing to take risks that and, and do things with her life that are much different than what the normal person would probably do. Now, I'm going to your what you just talked about made me want to go on five different tangents. But I before we go off on tangents, I want to finish wrap up that one little thing that you were talking about Africa. You said you had a question about. Yeah, about so I've got a country that that is the African country that for whatever reason. Well, I know the reason that's it's my favorite. I, not that I've been there, um, but that I, is the one that when I go to Africa, I got to go to. And it's the Gambia. So. Uh, I guess that's like my Togo and Comoros because I just you look at it on a map. It's this little finger that sticks into you into Africa. <laughs> it, it's country's official name is the Gambia, which I always yeah. thought was awesome. Um, <laughs> I, you know why? Who knows? So that's that's kind of my uh, Uruguay of Africa, man, is the Gambia. I'm just like, I got to go there. It's totally, you know, no one would go there for any reason. I don't think, you know, you could tell me, is there a reason yeah. to go to the Gambia? But it's just that place that I thought. In my mind, I want to see myself in the Gambia. I just wrote my chapter on Gambia, so you'll you'll enjoy it. And you're absolutely right about it. They insist on calling it the Gambia, just like the Netherlands. Right. <laughs> but uh, in my book, I just refuse to do it. I'm just going to say, no, I'm just going to call it Gambia. Um, it's your book, but, man. You can do what you want, right? <laughs> exactly. All right. Um, and But as far as it, there's a couple of fascinating facts. A lot of people say it's the smallest country in Africa. If you want to be a little difficult person you can say no technically it's not because the smallest country is swaziland seychelles oh uh, seychelles okay okay it's a little trick trick trivia question there, there. seychelles has less land than uh the gambia okay so um but but gambia is the smallest in the mainland continent of africa and the other thing that it's got the smallest peak so the Seychelles peak, the tallest mountain, because I was climbing the tallest mountain of every African country, and the tallest mountain in Seychelles is much higher. I can't remember. It's like almost 1,000 meters or so. But the one in, or maybe it's 300 meters. Anyway, but the the, the one in the Gambia is like 54 meters, which is <laughs> about, how much is that? It's like 180 yeah, feet or like something like that. Yeah, it's like an anthill, basically. Right? <laughs> like five steps and you're at the top. <laughs> so it is a, a fascinating country. And they just have, as you probably know, they had this change of leadership like two years ago or something like that, where they had this crazy dictator who was there for, I think about 22 years or so. And this, this guy got out. And so now they finally have a democracy, it seems again, but you're right. I mean, I'll be honest with you. There's really nothing that fascinating except for the fact that it is just such an oddball looking country on a map. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. And that's say, hey, and I'm all about the oddball countries, right? So you are too. That's why you do it. The other thing that's interesting about the Gambia is the fact that you have this, it really does show how the colonization actually made an imprint. Mm. So you would think that somehow after 60 years of independence or so, that they would just somehow have become francophone, just like Senegal, which is surrounded because it surrounds the Gambia. But they haven't. They, they don't speak French at all. Now, they, a lot of them speak Wolof, which is the, the big language that's popular in, in, uh, in Senegal. But they, it really is fascinating. You change the border, and literally a few meters down the road, suddenly you're speaking English. And they actually speak pretty good English, and most people speak English. Because there are some African countries that don't really speak the colonized tongue very well. Right. Uh, so, but, but like in Mali, for example, they're Francophone officially, but most people don't speak French very well at all. But, but in Gambia, 
Yeah, they speak English. Yeah, that isn't aren't borders fascinating? I mean, obviously because they can change, and and you know we saw that happening in Africa with Sudan and South Sudan and things like that. And and you know a lot of times they were carved up by people who you know weren't there or, or you know these ruling powers that didn't even pay any heed to tribal lines or anything like that. I, I had a very similar experience, obviously not in Africa, but when I was just driving across Canada last year or what, what have you. And as soon as we hit uh, Quebec and, and the border, you know, we go into a rest area and no one was speaking English to us. And not that. And, and you know, this was like two miles over the border. We go in and I'm trying to order at this little rest area and the girl's looking at me. I'm speaking English to her and she she barely understands what I'm saying. And obviously that's not the way for all, all people who live in Quebec. I don't know what was going on. I'm like, is this, am I somewhere even more distinct? Because I'm like two miles that way, they're speaking English, you know, and here, and I didn't speak any French. So it was just, it was wild to me that there's this border and all of a sudden everything changes. And you know, that, yeah, and that's no, just that's... in Canada too, you know, obviously not somewhere that, that you would think it would be as prevalent um, of a change. Yeah, no, it's it's totally fascinating how borders change. The, the most fascinating is kind of like what you alluded to, which are these quote unquote artificial borders, because you can when if it's a big mountain or a, a, a river that separates, you can kind of understand sure. that. But when there's it's just this line in the sand just randomly and yet it still somehow impacts yep. the culture on either side of that. I mean, that happens, by the way, in Mexico and, and the United States that, you know, we have this we've driven, you know, this nice straight line between Mexico and, and there's really a difference when you jump from one side of the border to the other. Yep. Juarez versus El Paso, for example, it's just it goes uh, it's I don't even know. If, are they, I hope those are neighboring country, uh, cities. I it, it war. Yeah, I think it's Juarez and El Paso. I don't know. My Texas geography, not not so great. I've I've been to Austin, but, um, you know, that's that's about my extent of hanging out in Texas. So but Juarez and El Paso are right next to each other. Yep. let's get into Jetto. This is one of your projects that you're doing. Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah. So we we actually just launched. Um, this would be. I, I say just launched. I don't know. There's like 18 launches when you have a company, right? And we're just, a, when I say a company, <laughs> it's just me and the developer. But we first, you know, put it out to people we knew. And I guess that was the the launch, you know. We just had our first, I guess, what would be official out to the public. You know, we're, we're trying to get it into as many hands as possible. And that was in um, in like mid-April of, of 2018. So we just, that's just coming about. And what it is, is an app that sends cheap flight deals directly to your phone. And when, and when we say cheap flight deals, it's not, oh, New York to LA is usually $300 and now it's $290. It's not, it's not like a, a small discount. It's usually stuff that is 40% off what it would normally be or more. So for example, we're talking New York City to Paris for $350 or you know, New York City to, to LAX for under like 200 bucks or under 200 bucks. Um, you know, stuff like that. So we do domestic in the U.S. and Canada, and then we also do international. So right now, the app, and, and our plans are to expand, but the app takes, I guess we have probably the 50 biggest airports in the U.S. and then like the 10 biggest airports in Canada. So any flights leaving from those airports, we monitor. And when a good flight deal comes up, what we do is we ping you on your phone. So it came about, and I can give the whole origin story, but really the idea was that I was getting these really cheap airfares. So I booked a ticket once that was New York City to um, to Milan round trip for 125 bucks. And then like four months later, I booked a ticket that was New York City to Madrid for 225. And then we did New York City to 
um, to Johannesburg, South Africa, which was 300 bucks. And that was probably our biggest score because that's, you know, that would typically be something like a thousand bucks or more. So I was getting these sure. like awesome flight deals. And, and those were what are called mistake fares. So some someone inputted something in the system wrong and, you know, they, they it was a mistake and then you buy it. And um, usually the airlines honor it because um, there's kind of pressure on them, too, from now from social media. And, you know, the U.S. government would put pressure on because they're like, well, yeah, it was a mistake, but it was your mistake type thing. So we'd get these mistake fares and people would always say to me, like, Trav, how do I how do I do that? How do I get these mistake fares? And I thought that, like the only reason I could the only way I could tell them was, hey, you have to monitor these like four or five websites that put up these deals, follow them on Twitter, whatever. And then, you know, people's eyes would glaze over and like, eh. Like, cool that you got a great deal. I want that too, but uh, like I have to monitor websites. Like, no, too much work, right? And, and then I, you know, they're like, can you send me in a, can you send me an email when it happens? I'm thinking like, no, I can't. Like, what you want? You know, there's like random people asking me to do this. I'm like, I can't do that. So I just, this, how many listeners do you have on your podcast? Right? I mean, yeah, I don't know. We've had over 3 million downloads. So, I mean, obviously <laughs> not everyone asked me for that, but I was just thinking like, well, there's got to be an easier way. Cause then you'd go to these websites and there'd be like instructions. They'd say, Okay, input this code and this code and this code to get it to work. So even when I would share it on on Facebook, I'd be like, "Hey, good deal." Share it on Facebook. Someone like my mom would see it and she she look at it, and then there'd be like seven steps of instructions in order to get it. So is it worth it? Yeah, probably if you're into it, but it's not worth it for just that regular person, or or it might be too confusing. So I had two goals. I was like, the one one goal was I want to be able to for someone to not have to be proactive. I want them to be able to be reactive. So they get the deal sent to them so that all they have to do is look at it and be like, hey, is this good? Yes or no. And if it is, let me look into it more. So that was the first goal. And the second goal was to make it easy enough so that when you open the app, you can see all the information there. Someone like my mom could look at it and they could say, OK, um, New York to Madrid. All right. Here are the dates. It's between May and June. Okay, um, it's you know it's round trip. I get a checked bag. You know, just give them the basic information, but not give them, not tell them how it's happening, right? It, what's that whole thing of like not showing them like what's in the sausage or whatever, how you make the sausage, but just basically giving them the end result. So those are the two goals: get it in their hands quick be, and and let them be reactive because the deals, especially when they're these mistake fares, they go in you know anywhere between four to twelve hours usually because the airlines like, whoops, this is wrong. Let's try to fix it. And then the second goal was make it simple so that someone could just a, a regular person who's not a crazy nerd about flying and traveling could look at it and could be like, OK, I get this. If I want to book it, I can just hit one button. It takes me to Priceline. I can put in my dates that I want to go and then I can I can do it so, and I could do it all for my phone. So that was the goal. Um, I started thinking about it three and a half years ago and uh, it it I don't know how to do anything with technology. I can't build an app. So. Um, originally I just thought, wouldn't it be cool if they got a text message instead of getting like an email? And, uh, that then turned into when I met a guy who was smarter than me, uh, he was like, well, why not just make it an app? And I thought, well, because that's even harder than what I made sending a text message, isn't it? And he was like, no, 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 an app's easy. So, um, yeah, I, I worked with one developer for a year that did not pan out. Not his fault, not my fault. I think we we're just trying to make it too perfect too soon. And then I put it on the shelf for a good eight to 10 months. And I just thought, all right, someone's going to make this. Like all I wanted was someone else to make it so that when people asked me, I could send them there. Like I would have been the biggest fan of anyone else who made this app. Right. And I think that's usually how we are. Like 
I want to solve my own problem. I want an easy way for people to get these cheap flights. And uh, no one made it. So I then randomly met someone at a wedding on New Year's Eve in Dublin for a friend of mine who kind of ran in the same circles as I did, but we had never met each other. You know, he had a lot of similar friends on the online world as I did. I didn't even know what he did. Um, and we just got talking and he was like, oh, yeah, I develop apps. And I'm like this tech guy. I don't know. Whenever anyone says they're a tech person, I just assume maybe you're like me, Francis, that they can do everything like, oh, you must be able to <laughs> build websites and do all this. And then usually it's like, no, they do one part of tech that doesn't really relate to me. But he actually built apps and he actually built an app for a conference that I had attended. And I remember having been on that app thinking, hey, this looks really nice. This works really well. So when I found out he built that. I was like, oh, we might have something here. And we met again uh, in Austin a couple months later just to just to meet up again and chat. And then we met again in Portland six months later. So New Year's Eve, we first met. And then it was kind of June or July. We met in Portland. And he mentioned that he had this idea that he just couldn't ever kill. You know, he's like, oh, I just got this idea. I think I, sh- I should do it. I-, I keep putting it off, putting it off, putting it off. And he actually said to me, do you ever have any of those ideas? And I thought, I've got one. And it's this idea for an app. And... I just, I want someone to make it so bad and I keep waiting for someone to do it and they haven't and I can't kill this idea three and a half years later. And he was like, that's an awesome idea. He had actually, when we met in Dublin, he had taken a crazy flight there where he was only in Dublin for 10 hours, basically for the wedding, drank a ton of champagne and then got back on a flight because it was like a $150 flight or something. So he was someone who was into that whole world anyway. He was a traveler and um, that was July twenty. 17 and then the app really got rolling january 2018 and now it's out to the public april 2018 so that's kind of the whole long story of it but it's it's this idea it's a simple idea but it's one that i thought hey this has a lot of validity to people um there's a big market of people who would want it and i want to make it because i want to scratch my own itch and help people out who keep asking me how do you get these deals now i can just say Download my app. There you go. And you'll get pinged whenever. So you're eating your own dog food now. That's right. That's right. For sure. (laughs) For sure. This is, you know, it really surprises me. I've been kind of living in a hole called Africa for the last five (laughs) years. And so I'm completely disconnected from all this technology in general. So I'm just so stunned that nobody's invented this before. But obviously, you of all people would know if somebody had done it. Because obviously, I'm just like everybody else. I know about all, every single time you go to Hipmunk or Kayak, they always say, hey, sign up to get you know s- some new deals by email and that kind of stuff. But what you're saying is it's not the same because they're either give you a little tiny discount. They're not looking for those mistake fares. Right. And this is a very kind of laser focused app that just looking for mistake fares. Now, my question is, is I want to know if somehow you can tell it. I only want to look for destinations out of JFK Airport, yes, for example. Yes, so that was the other part of it. So the other, kind of the third thing, I said there was two main goals. The third would have been that when you go to these sites, um, like Secret Flying, um, like the Flight Deal, these sites that have been putting up good deals. And when, and our app doesn't just do mistake fares. Like those are the best ones, of course. But it's there's some that aren't mistakes, but are just like really good flights. Like for example, they'll put Paris from JFK to Paris for 350. That's not a mistake. It's just they're saying, okay, we need to fill these seats. So the secret flying, the flight deal, those guys will put it up on their sites and they've been doing that for years. That's where I first found out about those. Those are the sites that I was following in the beginning, right? But again, it was all email based and and it was just this idea that I would go there and then I'd see all the flights they had, right? Like out of JFK, out of LAX, out of Chicago, out of 
Nashville, out of Miami. Like, you just saw everything at once. And you could, like, filter it out. But when you went to the main page, you were seeing everything. And I thought, well, I'm someone who wants to see everything because I'm crazy. Like, if there's a great flight out of LAX, I'd be like, all right, I'm going to hop on a flight from Philly to LAX and then go LAX to Tahiti because it's 500 bucks. It's worth it. But 95% of people, that's not going to work for them. They don't have the flexibility. So, in our app, what we do is what the first thing you do when you download the app is you pick your airports. So you can say, hey, I only want to see flights out of this region or I only want to see flights out of this airport. And so, you know, if you live in Philly, if you're like me, I, I want to see flights out of Philly, New York, you know, Washington, D.C. I'd, I'd probably even put Boston on there because it's six hours. Like if there was a crazy great flight like Iceland for 150 bucks, maybe I'd drive up there, see family and then fly from there. You know, so, uh, you know, you, you can pick exactly what airports you want to see flights out of. And then you'll only get notifications from those airports, which is exactly what we wanted out of it, because we knew a lot of people weren't willing to go from everywhere. So we're like, hey, let's give you only what you want. That's brilliant. Uh, now, question, if if you, let's say places in Africa, for example, which are notorious, it's so ridiculous here in the continent because it can be, let's say, if you want to fly from Sao Tome to uh, Portugal, I found a flight for $220 one way. But if I want to go to Sao Tome, which is right next to Gabon, I mean, it will cost me more than $220, even though I got to So the, the African flights, you, you oftentimes to, let's say, fly to an African country, it's cheaper to fly to Europe and then go to the other African <laughs> country from there than go directly. I mean, they're so retarded. But they're, they are changing that. Uh, they're, they're finally kind of making a common market. But my question is, is how about that? Can you say I want a whole continent? Can you or can you look at a whole continent or you have to go one by one and pick cities? So right right now, as we're speaking, the app only we only look at flights leaving from U.S. and Canada. And the reason for that is because we're two people and, um, you know, we had to start somewhere and we knew most of the people that followed our pod, my podcast and all that were U.S. or Canadian based. So right now you can only look out of the U.S. and Canada for flights leaving from there. Now, they go to all destinations. Like, I just posted one a couple days ago that was um, going to Kigali, Rwanda, right? From I, I, For whatever reason, that pops up as a destination more often than not when we go to Africa. Um, like, there was one, I don't know why. It just seems like there's, some, for some reason, some sort of fair war going there. So it was like 640 bucks, which normally probably be, you know, if you're going from New York or somewhere on the East Coast, probably a thousand, twelve hundred bucks. So it it's only airports right now in US and Canada, but they do fly, like we do have them going all over the country and or all over the world, excuse me. And if it's a, if it's a really distinct one, because we see a lot of deals to Europe. So we use our discretion too, right? Like I'll post a bunch of deals to Europe, but if there's one that's going to like Tahiti or Rwanda, like I will always prioritize posting them because they're fun like they're destinations that you don't see show up all the time but when you do get the app you can pick it's sorted out by regions so if you did want like you know there's only there's 50 i think we have 50 u.s airports right now so like you instead of having to go and like check each single one which wouldn't take that long but is a bit annoying you can actually just say select the whole region so if you were like hey select the whole region of the east coast select the whole region of uh, the Midwest, blah, blah, and then you could uncheck the ones that you didn't want. So if you wanted to have every airport that we have and just get notifications from any of them, it would probably take you 
uh, like 30 seconds to just like say select, select, select for all the regions, and then you'd get them from anywhere. Now, how many, how annoying is the app as far as notifications? In other words, let's say you live in Philadelphia like you do, and you subscribe to just Philadelphia. How often are you going to get pinged? Yeah, so we put out about 10 to 15 deals a day. And so if you only select one airport, like, uh, we actually put out a, a little, not even a server. We just called our data the other day, which is pretty interesting to see, and say, hey, what are the airports after doing this for, we've been putting deals up for four months, even though it was the app wasn't active to everyone, but it was to like a, our kind of like beta users. Um, and New York City was, JFK had the most deals out of it. LAX, I think, was second. Newark was third. Philly was like four or five. But that being said, if, if you selected one like Philly, you probably get one deal every two days ish. So again, if you have 10, if we put out 10 to 15 a day and there's like 60 airports, obviously some of them, like if, for example, if you put Nashville, which is one of the smaller airports, you might only get a notification every week or so, maybe not even. And so one of the things we actually encourage people to do is select more airports because you get a ping and you look at it and all the information's right there on your screen. It takes you like three seconds probably to decide, all right, Nashville to Kigali, Rwanda in November. No, I don't want to do that. Okay, swipe it off the screen, right? Um, so we actually, our whole thing is trying to get people to select more airports because you never know when something's going to hit that's such a good deal that makes it worth it. So if you're selecting Nashville, like, hey, you should probably look at some of the other ones in that region. Like maybe you would select Charlotte. Like I know it's far away, but hey, if it was Italy to a hunt for $125, maybe. Maybe you select JFK because what if you could get a flight from Nashville to JFK for 100 bucks and then go JFK to Italy for 125 Is that worth it? You know, you're probably going to have to connect anyway. So here, so our thing is the more airports you select, the better chance you're going to have when one of those really awesome deals hits to get something and to jump on it. So we call it, we kind of call it the app for the spontaneous traveler because you don't pick the destinations, right? Like a lot of people thought, said to us, well, wait, am I picking where I go? And I'm like, no, no, no. It's even in my mind better than that because you're going to get a ping and it's going to say Philly to, to Kigali, Rwanda. And you're going to say like, oh man, where's that? Like what's there? Oh, I could go see like the gorillas. Like that's, that's pretty cool. Let me check into that um, and see if it's something I want to do. Yeah, no, it sounds like an amazing app. I mean, and how you decide to monetize it? Is it just a commission if they decide to book the fare? Yeah, so it's two ways. The commissions are super small on airfare. So that's like peanuts, like literally peanuts. Like, I, we couldn't an even extra pay. Pack of peanuts. Yeah, it's an extra pack <laughs> of peanuts. We couldn't even pay like the hosting for our website per month with the commissions, at least not now. So because they're really small, they give you like if someone books a flight that's six hundred dollars we might get a dollar or maybe three dollars so um that's one way but that's the small part the other way that we do it is there is a free and a premium version so there's there's a few differentiators and we're kind of we're we're asking our users like what do you want to see in the premium version what do you want to see in the free version so things are constantly changing but one of the biggest things that's the difference and we'll I say will always be a difference but maybe not don't hold me to my word on that because you know we're figuring out what how we can make it best for everyone. But when you are a premium user, you get to see all the deals. So if you do select the entire East Coast, every time there's a deal from JFK, Philly, DC, Baltimore, 
um, you'll see any of those deals that come of, from the airports that you select. If you're a free user, you'll only see at this point, we're only doing one every three days. So you'll miss out on some of the deals. That's the main differentiator at this point is that if you're a free user, you don't see all the deals that happen. Um, if you're a premium user, you will. And so for us, it's like if you're someone who's fairly serious about traveling and, and all that, you know, for $7 a month or $40 a year, it's probably worth you getting the premium version because if you save, uh, on average, you save about $350 to $400 on a ticket if you book one of the deals that we give you. You know, if you do the math, that's like 10 years worth of a subscription. So um, our hope is that in 10 years, you book at least one flight and, and it'll make it worth it. That's That's good. Now, what about, you know, I've always had this debate about whether it's you get better deals at last second or whether you book a month or two in advance. Those are the right times. Is there just no rhyme or reason to this at all? I, I know there's like some, I don't want to say fallacies, but some common held beliefs that are halfway true, but not always true, right? So for example, people say, all right, the cheapest day to, to book a flight is Tuesday and Wednesday. So overall, that's, that is not bad advice because if you think about it realistically, all right, people are traveling, business travelers traveling on Monday and Friday or Thursday, you know, to get back. So you've got a lot of business travelers, a lot of people who are recreational travelers are leaving on when or uh, Friday, Saturday or Sunday, you know, on a weekend. So is it somewhat cheaper sometimes on Tuesday and Wednesday? Yeah, but that, you know, I could be looking for a flight right now and Tuesday could be $200 more expensive to go to Madrid than it is on Friday for whatever reason. So I would say that there's no hard and fast rules. That's for sure. Last minute versus months out. That's another thing. Like they, it all fluctuates based on demand. So there could be some crazy thing happening where everyone wants tickets for this one destination at this one time. And those prices go up like 10 months beforehand. And maybe then when they, when there's a few seats or people cancel they're they're lower last minute, but I have not, I have never or I've not seen any type of pattern where, hey, if you always book three days before last minute, you're going to get the best deal. I've certainly gotten screwed that way multiple times. And by screwed, I just mean I paid more money, you know, not the end of the world. But I, I travel very, a lot last minute and I, I've certainly paid more than I would have if I had, if I had planned before. And then there's other times where I've paid a little less. So when you're paying for tickets, I, there really isn't any rhyme or reason. But one piece of advice I would give people, and you kind of already touched on this, is to have flexibility, not just in the dates that you're traveling. Because when you say have flexibility, people think, oh, instead of leaving Sunday, maybe I'll leave Tuesday. That's cool. That's good flexibility to have, too. If, if, if you're able to have that, um, certain days can be vary by hundreds of dollars but also have flexibility into where you're traveling either from or to. And you you mentioned like sometimes you come out of one African airport and it might be a couple hundred dollars cheaper than right next door. So that happens quite a bit. I, you know, people say, Oh, I want to go to Paris and it's $700, but you might be able to snag a flight to London for 350 or $400. So now does it make sense for you to go to London and take the train or hop on a quick little um, you know, small jumper plane over to Paris for 50 bucks with EasyJet or Ryanair or something like that. Yeah, that might make sense. So have some flexibility in where you're looking to, especially if you're going to Europe 
or you're going to Asia where they have mass amounts of budget airlines like EasyJet, Ryanair, AirAsia, you would be shocked at how cheap you can fly around some of those regions. I mean, we're talking for $10, $20, $30 sometimes. Yeah, no, it's amazing. And it's something that I some I, I don't fly much at all, period. But it, even in Africa, I just rarely would fly. But it, when I did have to fly, especially to get to the island, there's seven island nations including our favorite Comoros. <laughs> the, it's Fan like favorite. Comoros. I, I, listen, you, Comoros, the nearest to the mainland is Tanzania. It was one-way ticket, $350. Oh, and it's like, you can, I mean, it's not that you can swim there, but I mean, it's it's not, you look at it on a map, Comoros to Tanzania doesn't look that far. Right. And $350, one way, not an even round trip. I mean, it's just crazy. So they really, but they really don't have very many budget deals or budget. I mean, and you, then I hear these people flying across Europe for like $10. Right. I'm like, oh, why? It's, it's fascinating to me because you, you think of Europe and you think, oh, really expensive. And then you think of Africa and in your head, you're like, oh, that must be really cheap. Well, no. Yeah, right. Like, a probably <laughs> not true. And there's, and it just yeah. comes because there's not, there's not options, right? And that's kind of, kind of our whole thing. We tell people with Jetto and with extra pack of peanuts and earning frequent flyer miles and paying for flights. We're like, the more options you have, the better, because there's just gonna. Be, I mean, that just makes sense, right? It makes logical sense that there's more options. You're probably gonna be able to find better deals. Now with Comoros, were you able to take like a boat there would that have even been feasible or no i tried for three weeks to grab a boat but uh, <laughs> it's africa and so it just takes forever i mean the guy kept on saying like oh the it'll leave this week and then it wouldn't leave I, it'll leave next week it didn't leave how about next week no so it's just like well we don't know when it's going to leave and so I, at some point my my visa was going to expire so i was like all right i stayed three weeks on this wonderful island and i decided to finally just pay the bite the bullet and, and fly yeah. out it, right now i'm 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 planning on how to get out of Cameroon and I want to go to Algeria and the flights I think were about $880 to go from Cameroon to Algeria that was the cheapest fare I could fly in. so then I said okay how about go to Sao Tome which is not that far and then $220 to go to Portugal from Portugal take a train across Spain because my wife wants to see Barcelona anyway yeah why not get to go to southern France uh Marseille and from Marseille, take a $67 flight to Algeria. So so basically add $220 to $67, basically less than $300. I could get there instead of spending $880. Yeah, and you got that 500 <laughs> extra dollars to spend to like hang out in Barcelona and, you know, to actually yeah. travel, right? As opposed to just right. get on the plane. You're paying all that. Yeah, I love that. I mean, it's that's what's so great about having flexibility and, and things like that is the ability to, to do something like that. Like say, Hey, I, my end goal is Algeria, but I don't have to be there by a certain time. I don't need to be there for a certain thing. I don't have two weeks of vacation. So let me figure out a fun way to get there. That's actually going to save me money and be an experience versus just hopping on an airplane. Yeah. And the other thing that sometimes irritates me about these websites is that so often, you know, they've gotten better, but they there's so much like they're trying to pigeonhole you. And I understand why. I mean, because otherwise there's a million variables if you don't. But it's kind of like sometimes they ask, you know, what flight, you know, what airport do you want to leave out of in Cameroon? I'm like, I don't care. Any airport. Uh, when do you want to go? I don't care. Anytime right. in the next six months. Where do you want to go? I don't care. Anywhere. <laughs> yeah. You and so I have a I tough went... life. I'm the same way. I'm like, it's like I want to leave from Philly and go somewhere in Europe. And people are like, well, where? I'm like, I don't care. 
And they're like, well, what do you mean? I'm like, I don't care. I just want to go over there. That's but all. I'm even worse. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm like you. Instead of saying I want to leave out of Philly, yeah. I'm like, I want to leave out of the East Coast. Right, right. Well, yeah, I've, <laughs> I've, I've learned that I have to at least narrow my stuff down because, yeah, then it becomes impossible. I'm spending days, right, like searching. And, and I'm pretty good at searching for flights, too. Obviously, I've done it quite a bit. And it's still taking me forever because there is. It's infinite amount of variables at that point when you're looking at 15 airports to fly to like 70 airports, you know, and sometimes I just have to be like, all right, I'll fly out of Philly or JFK and go from there. But yeah, I, I, I have yet to find a website that does what you're saying because I've wanted that forever. I don't think that will be my next project. Let's just put that out there. Basically making uh, <laughs> you will you will need to need, need more computing power than all of Google. Right, right. Make a flight tool to show <laughs> from any airport to any airport um, and run all the variables. Yeah, that will not be the next project. But if someone makes it, I'd be happy to to recommend it. Right. The closest I've got, there's two websites that approximate kind of what I'm talking about, which is um, Skyscanner. Yeah. They kind of have this option where you do, I think, pick an airport and then you can click on everywhere yep. as an option. And then and then you can click on an entire month. You can say, I want the whole month of July. And they, so they kind of get there, but oftentimes I find that they don't even give me, not oftentimes, because I'm dealing again with Africa. So maybe I'm sure if, if I were in Europe or America, they would give me some real options, but oftentimes they just give me a bunch of question marks. In other words, you got to drill down anyway. <laughs> right. But that's one option. The other one is is Google Flights. Yep. Um, they also have this. You know, they show you a map of the whole world, and then they show you all these price points. So those, but but then I didn't find their prices to be that great right. on the Google Flights compared to other places. So I assume, obviously, you must know of those. You know, Skyscanner and and Google Flights. What other ones do you like but that give you this kind of wide, big casting, a big, big net? Yeah. Besides, of course, Jetta. Right, right. Jetto. That's exactly what I do as well. I, I, I tend to use Google Flights. Google Flights has an interesting... They just switched around how like their front end and how it looks. But they also have a thing that they hide, and I don't know why they hide this. Maybe because it's... I don't know. But they have a thing called Google Flights Explorer. And that's essentially like their, their map version but you have to put in like google.com slash flights slash explore. And what you can do is then you have to still leave from an airport. Like you said, I can't put in any airport in the U.S., but I could put in Philadelphia or New York. Um, and then you can put in a region. So you could put in Europe. And what it'll do, what's kind of cool, is it then shows you all the cheapest places you could fly in Europe, like the top 10, I think, or top 15. So it'll be like Dublin, London, Budapest, whatever. And I'll show you. And then it has a graph for each day for each city. So, you know, you could see Dublin, it says like the cheapest day is 450 bucks. And maybe that's like uh, on a Tuesday, but then the Wednesday is 600 bucks. So not only can you see the cheapest cities to go to, but you can see each city's cheapest days for a whole month. And then you can like scan over. So if I'm looking in May, I could like scan over and I could look in June and July. So that's the best that I've found as far as giving me the clearest picture um so i start there so i'm like if i look and i say okay well i know that that dublin is really cheap to go to europe um all right let me look into dublin more and then i click on dublin and then of course i can see the whole calendar view for two months and then i can click on the day and then it shows me the actual flights right like i can drill down to oh well that flight is cheap but it's going to route me i mean 
Ireland's a bad example because it won't usually route you too many places. But let's say, oh, it's going to route me to Germany first, and then it's going to take me down to Paris and over to Dublin. Well, I don't want to do that for 400 bucks. I'd rather spend 450 and have a nonstop. So you still have to keep drilling it down. But that's the broadest scope that I found is their Google Flights Explorer tool, which, again, you can't, you can't get to. Um, I think it's like the technology is used for their map function on the front end. But if you go to google.com slash flights slash explore, you can get to that page that I'm talking about. So that's a fantastic tip. And that's worth listening to this whole podcast just to get that <laughs> yeah, one tip. I, 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 whenever <laughs> I tell that to anyone, their mind's blown. They're like, why doesn't Google, like, why doesn't Google flights have this, like promote it? I'm like, I don't know. I, it, it's awesome for people like us who, who really want the most broad based version of what they're trying to show us. So I don't know, man. Now plug your frequent flyer bootcamp. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the other things we do, so we, we talk about Jetto and paid flights and we're talking about paid flights a lot, but for me, the biggest thing that has changed my travel and really made my travel dreams a reality is using frequent flyer miles. And this happened, I was living in Japan. It was 2011 and I just I, I was teaching, so I didn't have a ton of money, right? And I wanted to travel cheaper, and I wanted to figure out how I could travel home to the U.S. and also still go to Australia and all that kind of stuff. I started learning about frequent flyer miles, and I don't know if you're like me, Francis, but I I had zero frequent flyer miles to my name then. I did not have a single credit card. I, I was 20. I would have been like 28 then. And the only person I were knew, they paying you like about? Were you, sorry to interrupt, yeah. but were they paying you about thirty thousand dollars a year or a little yeah, bit more? Yeah, our, our exchange rate kicked butt there when I was in Japan. So actually, it it it's usually around thirty thirty five thousand. It was actually coming out to about forty five thousand US because the yen was the strongest it had ever been against the dollar, which was and great. What city were you living in? Uh, I was living in a city called Hamamatsu, which is basically dead between Tokyo and Osaka, right on the uh, little Shinkansen line there. So we were in a great area because we could get we could get most places very quickly. Yeah, Skoshi Wakari Mas. I understand little. Uh, yeah, but um, <laughs> like, and I can't even say that clearly anymore because I'm like tongue tied. <laughs> but yeah, I learned a little bit of Japanese. Uh, it was okay when I was there, but I didn't keep up with it. And I never fully studied it it was almost like survival japanese right Be like how do i go to a store how do i not make a fool of myself when asking for directions and so it was like those day-to-day -day things that now i don't have to use it all and i wouldn't use a normal conversation with a japanese person if i was speaking japanese with them um in the u.s at least so yeah it it must, it must have been hard for you living in Japan in some ways, I'm just imagining, because you're such the extrovert, and th they live in a culture of not necessarily introvert, but kind of shyness, yes. and, unless they're drinking sake. Right. Well, and, right. And, and okay, so it was probably one of, now that you bring this up, I haven't actually thought about this a lot, um, but now that you bring it up, I think it was probably one of the biggest learning experiences of my life, and I knew that... I. But I say that in terms of like me growing as a person because you're right. I love talking to people. I love interacting. If I go out to the grocery store, I'm probably chatting up someone about something because they're looking at bananas and I'm, yeah, who knows what. I ask them a question about it because I just, I really enjoy interaction. I really enjoy hearing people's stories, hence why I have 350 podcast episodes, right? But <laughs> I... In Japan, obviously not speaking the language well and not I could I was I could not speak it well enough to be 
someone's friend in Japanese. So I could have maybe a five to 10 minute conversation and then that was it. So you couldn't have much of a relationship and it was difficult. So I had my wife there and that was obviously very helpful because we both lived there so we could talk to each other when we came home. But um, it's interesting that day to day when I went out um, after work, after teaching to the store, to the gym, to wherever I was going, I probably said five to 10 words if it wasn't to Heather. And thinking about that is mind boggling to me now. I mean, how many words have we said just in the last, you know, 50 <laughs> minutes on the podcast? It, it, you really just learn to live in a different way. Um, and I'll tell you one thing that I, I do miss about it. it. To me, it was very peaceful and Japan as a whole kind of has that has that vibe and unless I guess you're in Shibuya and whatever but when you're in the countryside like I kind of was it's a very peaceful setting but it was also very peaceful because I didn't have a lot of people like going for my attention grabbing for my attention I went out to the store and I knew what I had to get and it was me walking around and stuff was happening around me and but I wasn't you know you were almost not a part of it to some extent. So it was nice that you just kind of did the things. It was a really peaceful, mellow existence for the most part. Um, and that's, there's something to be said for what that. What a different experience. What a different experience you would have if you went through all 54 African countries, because Africans are <laughs> in so many ways, the opposite of, of, of Japanese, because they are hyper social people. <laughs> you, it's, it's a very verbal culture. The, but but here's what's fascinating, and I think you'll appreciate this because you lived two years in Japan. There is something that the Africans in general uh, share with the Japanese, and that is this whole idea of kind of saving face and avoiding conflict mm -hmm. and not saying no to your face. Um, the Africans in general, they have this kind of discretion and this wanting to avoid conflict. I've, I've visited Japan three times, and I definitely, if you add them all up, and maybe about three weeks of my life. So nothing compared to you, but I think you would agree that in Japanese society, there is that kind of culture of avoiding conflict and kind of saving face and, and just, uh, not saying no to anybody in their face. I remember one time there's this uh, Japanese person. I asked them, okay, I hear you guys say, hi, hi, hi all the time. So it's, which means yes, yes, yes. What's the word for no. And then he's like, Hmm, don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, you're, you're, you're completely right. The word for no is nigh, but, um, but, uh, but, but, they, but he, like, yeah. they never use no, it. No, <laughs> no. And actually I, it took me a little, like I was thinking, is this right? And I hope it is right. I could be, I'm pretty sure it's right, but yeah, you don't, you don't use it that much. And I, you are totally right that in my, now I'm coming from a Western standpoint, right? So that's the only viewpoint that, that I have as, as a growing up in this culture, but into my mind, it's almost detrimental how against conflict Sometimes it is because, and and not, certainly not all the time. Like there is a, the, I love the Japanese spirit, and I love the the helpfulness. Like we were there during the earthquake, the um, and the the like everyone banding together and just like it didn't matter that they were tired. I mean, these people would shovel for like eighteen hours straight to remove rubble, and I'm sitting there like, how are you not tired? Like I'm dying here, and never like never a thought that they would stop. Be, because you just didn't like something had to get done. So there is so much I love, but sometimes I would get frustrated with the lack of sticking up, not even sticking up, but saying something or saying against something that wasn't right or that you 
that that you just didn't agree with, even if it was something small. And you're like, hey, just tell them that that's not how you want it. You're not going to hurt anyone's feelings because it's a little thing, but it wouldn't. And so then stuff would perpetuate for a while that you think, hey, we could just like we could have put a like a stake in this and had it been done days ago. And it's so small, but no one wanted to say it. Right. So, of course, there were certainly times where I um. I did do stuff that a Japanese person wouldn't do. And I think, honestly, sometimes it had an effect that they were like, oh, like, I'm glad that someone did that. I wouldn't have done it, but I'm glad that someone did so that it ended this situation or whatever. But you're completely right. Avoidance of confrontation is a a huge part of the culture. And yeah, and it does have a penalty also in Africa as well, especially like this. And and there's this idea of not wanting to disappoint. So, for example, in Africa, if you ask a person will this car that you're fixing my car, will it be ready on Thursday? They'll tell you, yes, it will be ready on Thursday. But of course they, they know it's not going to be ready on Thursday, but they don't want to, they know they'll disappoint you if they give you, <laughs> you know, the, right. the real story. And so it becomes detrimental because then of course I show up on Thursday. Oh, it's still not ready. Oh, what the hell? You told me Thursday. And then it doesn't show up until, you know, I've waited. I'll give you one quick anecdote. When I was in Burkina Faso, the mechanic, every single day I asked him, when will the car be ready? And it was always either this afternoon or tomorrow. And he kept this up for almost a month. <laughs> yeah, that's how you end up on the island of Comoros for three weeks too, right? I mean, when's the boat <laughs> exactly. coming? Oh, tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, tomorrow means three <laughs> weeks from now. But yeah, I um, the the difference between Japan and, and, and your experience is that you better believe if someone told you like it was going to be ready or, the, or of course the trains, you know, the trains. Right, right, if, right. if they're like a train is coming at 12.01, it is pulling into the station when like the atomic <laughs> clock hits 1201, no matter what. And I remember one time, I forget, we were going somewhere really important. I can't remember what it was. It was the one time this train was late. And of course, you know, trains and stuff are late all the time, even in the best countries, because stuff happens, right? Like, I, I don't know. There's a malfunction. Sure. One time we were going somewhere and the train was late and it was, the you know, it was in two years in Japan. I can remember it. It was the one time we were late more than like a minute or two. Um, and everyone was just losing it. Like they couldn't believe it. Like what's going on? And we're like, I, I don't know, maybe like a train derail, like who knows anything could happen. Right. But to them, it was just unfathomable that we were, that this train was late. And of course, you know, they did everything they could to, to make sure like everything else got back on schedule, probably within the next hour, you know, they're running like extra trains and doing everything to make sure that it, it didn't ruin the whole day. So that's that's probably the big difference there uh, between those two mindsets for sure. Sure, and and Africa really has in some ways that to, that's what's fascinating about Africa is that they're a polar opposite of Japan in so many ways, <laughs> right. but then they are similar in other ways. And just and, and they're quite similar. It's uncanny how they, there's the, both of these things can coexist, and that's the fun thing about travel. And by the way, I will say that after about 120 countries I've visited, Japan still is to me the most unique country around because you can visit so many countries and almost always you can find a a comparable country to it you know switzerland is kind of like germany and or Liechtenstein certainly and you know and france is kind of like spain and whatever and and china is probably similar to something else but anyway but the point is but when you get to japan japan it doesn't i've been to korea and i don't find like Japan is like way out there. It doesn't really have a comparable country. I, I, I would mean, obviously agree with that you know what wholeheartedly. I have not been to 120 countries. And I lo- that's interesting that you say that because I think if someone asked me, I think that would be my same answer. But then I think, well, I was there for two years too, so maybe I just saw a side of it. But I, I, 
I I think you're you're right that it's just, I mean, A, it was isolated for so for so long on purpose, you know, that was their own call and all. I also just think that they are so strong-willed in keeping their culture and their morals and everything like that intact that they, you know, even when outside influences come, it doesn't penetrate society as a whole in a good way usually. Like, it, they, they don't cowtail to, oh, well, this is the— you know, the, I guess the the westernization of of some of those other countries, like you mentioned, like South Korea, which obviously has a, its own distinct stuff going on, but also very very western in some ways. Japan is forward thinking and innovative, but it's all coming from inside for the most part. And um, I it it is truly a fascinating fascinating place. And I yeah, I can't think of anything that I would compare it to. Um. At all, whereas you mentioned every other country I've been to, you know, U.S. and Canada, uh, you know, Southeast yeah. Asia, like Thailand and Cambodia. Obviously, they're distinct; they have their own things, but they are at least there's there's a lot of similarities. And Japan st- stands out for sure, and and they know it, and I think they take a lot of pride in it because if you ever say, if you ever like, we were there and we made the mistake of calling like Japanese people Asian, and they do not want to be called Asian at all; they want to be called mm-hmm. Japanese. I think some of it's a little bit of a uh, an ego trip, like. For them, they are the pinnacle of Asia. Like they're the the first world country, the the most innovative, the most advanced. So calling them Asian, they're like, no, we don't want to be lumped in with these other countries. Saudi Arabia. Yeah, but um, they are just. They also. We're not like Kazakhstan. Yeah, yeah. There and and even to the point, like obviously they don't want to. They're like, we're not like China. We're not like Korea. You know, they don't want to be lumped into to ones that you would typically maybe lump them into because they're near them and and stuff like that. But they're very very strong-willed about like hey we're japanese and that's it like nothing else no other you know monikers or anything like that so yeah it's kind of similar to the russians in other words are the russians european well no are they asian (laughs) well no they're just russian yeah yeah yeah. that's it (laughs) just russian So it's true. And okay, we totally digress from frequent fire boot camp. Yeah, so uh, long story short, I was in Japan. I wanted to learn about frequent fire miles. I started learning about them and I was like this is too good to be true. Like you can't or the only person I knew that had frequent fire miles was my uncle uh, who traveled a ton for business and I remember being like a 10-year-old and he took me into a lounge once and I thought where am I? Like what? I'm in an airport that's that's like fancy inside. This, you know, my whole thing of airports was like you know, you get on the plane, like you're sitting on these hard seats and all of a sudden I'm in the lounge. So he was the only person I knew who had frequent fire miles or ever talked about him or ever lived in that world. So to me, frequent fire miles were just for people who, who flew a lot. Um, and then I realized like you could get, you could get frequent fire miles a lot of ways. One the biggest way, if you're in the U S and Canada is through credit card signups and all those bonuses that you see on TV and magazines all the time, right? Earn 50,000 points. And William Shatner's telling you that, you know, this new card has no blackout dates and all that stuff. We well, see all these things and, and maybe you get these credit cards and you have these points. And then, you know, my guess would be 75% of people don't end up using the points at all. And then certainly probably 90% of people aren't using them effectively. Like they might use them, but not in the way that they could get the most value. So I started learning about it. It was like learning a new language, Francis. I was on this really nerdy forum that still exists called Flyer Talk. And I was just like, I, I couldn't even understand what people were saying. It'd be like, AA slash PHL dash 4.27 CPM. I'm like, ah, whoa. <laughs> like, what does that mean? Now I know it's like an AA flight out of Philadelphia is getting you 4.27 cents per mile. But then, I, you know, it took me, 
I would honestly say one of the reasons I didn't learn Japanese as well as I could have was because <laughs> I started spending all of my time learning about frequent flyer miles. So I would I would nerd out on them. I'd spend all my time in these forums. I'd Google stuff and then I'd get like sent right back to the same forum because it was only one place people were talking about it. <laughs> so I'm like, wait, no one else is explaining what this means. But then little blogs started popping up here and there, like the Points Guy and Million Mile Secrets. And then I started my blog because what happened was mo I realized most of the people who were talking about this stuff in the forums were talking about it at like a, uh, an advanced level, like a seven or eight out of 10, which didn't help the people like me. It took me six months to really start figuring it out to get to like a level two or three. So I was like, well, why? And then I started, of course, because I like to talk to people, telling friends and family, like, you got to get this credit card. You got to get these miles. Like you could come see me in Japan going crazy like I normally do and getting very, very uh, immersed in one thing and, and a bit obsessed about it. But I, so I was sending them emails of how to do it. And then I thought, well, why shouldn't I, I should just put this on a website because like if I'm a two out of 10 now and someone's a zero out of 10 and they want to know about it, I can teach them better than someone who's an eight out of 10 because they already forget what it's like to be new to it. Right. And that's, that's the hard part about teaching sometimes is if you know something really well, you, you, you gloss over the stuff in the beginning because you've, you, to you, it's second nature. But at that point, it wasn't to me. Right. So I started writing. Uh, that's how Extra Pack of Peanuts was born. I started that in January, January 1st of 2012. Always an easy date to remember. Um, and I just started writing everything I knew about it. And people, you know, slowly started reading it. And um, they wanted more help, more help. And so I turned it into an ebook. And then people were like, oh, this is cool. But I don't really want to, you know how it is. Like, I don't want to spend my time reading about it. I just want you to show me how to do it. And I turned that into a full-blown online course now called Frequent Flyer Bootcamp, which is essentially I just hold your hand. I explain all the theories behind it. Like, hey, here's why airline miles work. Here's how to get them. Here's why airline alliances are really important when it comes to airline miles because you don't have to use your American Airlines miles on an American Airlines flight. You could use it on a Qantas flight because they're partners. So why does so kind of going over the the broad stuff and explaining the the reasoning behind it because I think that's important for that people understand why something is happening and then obviously going into the hey once you have United miles and here's why they're the best here's how you actually book a trip on United click this button click this button click this button you know so it's really basically frequent flyer miles for dummies all the way like you could be someone who knows nothing about it and has zero like I was when I started and it will walk you through the whole process and by the end, if you if you go all the way through all the um, the lessons, you can be doing super advanced stuff like um, like stopovers and open jaws, which essentially means you're flying from New York to London, then London to Paris, then Paris to Madrid, then Madrid back for the same amount of miles as if you just went New York to London and back. So you're able to like add on extra vacations and things like that by understanding some of the routing rules and and how to do it and you're still only paying 60,000 miles same as you would if you just did one round trip to one city. So, yeah, we walk you through from big, like zero to hero basically when it comes to it. And that's our frequent fire boot camp course and um that actually lives on our site, but it's not always available because we kind of bring people in in cohorts and then we we make sure they're really understanding it versus just trying to sell as many of them as we can all the time. How much is it? Right now it's $997. Um, we do offer like we run promotions and stuff and discounts, um, but that's for our like our full blown everything. It's nine hundred ninety seven dollars um, and people. Thankfully, the people who use it come back to us and they're like, I just booked a family of four and uh, we save five thousand dollars on these tickets like this is well worth it. And that's when I know I'm like, cool, great. I'm glad, you know, because for me, 
if I one of these days, I say this all the time, and I probably never will, you know. But one of these days, I want to sit down and try to figure out how much we've exactly we've saved. But my rough estimate, and this would be low, would be that Heather and I have probably saved over two hundred thousand dollars worth of flights in in what? Well, how long have we been doing it now? Seven years. Yeah. So, and wow. that's not really accounting for like, you know, you take one business class flight and it's 20 grand. That's kind of the cool part of freaking fire miles too, is like, I would obviously never pay for a business class flight, but I've been able to fly it because I have miles and I'm able to like treat ourselves here and there. So that's not really taking that into account. It's more just what would be the cheapest I could get this flight. If you take some of these crazy itineraries we've done, sometimes it's $5,000, $6,000, $7,000 a person. And we're paying a hundred dollars, right? For the taxes and fees. So yeah, that's right. been radically, I mean, that's the thing that opened up the travel world to me because all of a sudden I was paying a tiny portion of what I would have to pay normally. How much, uh, how long does it take the, the boot camp? How does it work? Uh, I would, uh, I'd have, I'm probably going to. Is it like a, it's an online yeah, course? Yeah, it's an online that course kind of... and I would guess, I'd have to check, but it's probably four hours worth of content total. And they're broken up into like three to seven minute videos. And the reason we do that is because, you know, some people are going to come in and just like rip through it and they want to. But it's we make them like small, digestible, chunk sized videos so that if you're sitting there and you're like, OK, I want to dip in and watch two videos right now on this specific topic. You could go in and watch it. And, and glean what you need as opposed to then, you know, as opposed to having to like watch a bunch of other stuff. So it's like three to seven minute videos broken out into, I think, seven sections. So everything from like the very beginner stuff all the way up through, okay, obviously how to earn miles. Then we talk about redeeming miles. Then we talk about kind of the advanced strategies. There's some stuff on accommodations in there and how to use hotel points for free accommodations because that's works in the same vein as frequent flyer miles. You know, hotel points are similar. It's just for accommodations versus flights um, and things mm -hmm. like that. So all told, I think it's about four hours. And that was my goal when I first started it way back when was to literally say, hey, if you get the right information in four hours, you could be dangerous enough that you could start figuring this out and start getting free flights immediately, assuming you already had miles. And if not, then you'd start earning the miles. And then in a couple months, you could get free flights. I, I didn't want it to be too much information, but obviously I wanted it to be you know, very thorough. So that was the balancing act there of, you know, I don't want to give someone a, a three month course on it. Right. Because by then you're like, no, just get me on the flight. So we are able to cut it down pretty concise. That, that is uh, so true. I mean, some people just want the information right now and that's kind of what your Jetto application is also trying to get. Just, just solve me the problem. Yep. Yep. Everything we do, we're trying to solve a problem, um, whether it be learning frequent fire miles and not spending six months on nerdy forums like I did. You could spend four hours mm -hmm. doing it. Or like with Jetto, the idea is like, I just want to get cheap flights when they're from my airport. Okay, cool. Yeah, download the app and, and you're good to go. Yeah, no, that's, that is great advice. I think that a lot of people would benefit from it. I, for example, haven't been using frequent flyer stuff at all because like I said, I, for the last five years, I've barely traveled at all. And they're just African airlines that I don't, you know, Ethiopian arrow, right. which I'm probably not going to take again. And then also <laughs> uh, there's no, there's no credit card use right. except for in a couple of countries and a couple uh, like in North Africa, maybe Algeria, not, no, not even Algeria. Tunisia, they use a credit card, uh, South Africa, of course, but that's about it. I remember, give you one funny anecdote. I was in Benin and I want, I was buying a car for $30,000 and I couldn't pay by wire transfer. They wouldn't take a credit card. I had to pay in cash. <laughs>
in yeah, their so currency, oh, which man. created like, you know, a huge bricks of cash because their currency is not as strong as the U.S. dollar. So, I mean, it, everything is cash. You buy airflow, everything. It doesn't matter what you're buying. It's always cash, cash, cash. So there's no way you're going to accumulate anything. I show them a credit card. They look at me like, what is that? Right. Like, oh, actually, it's not totally fair because they do have ATM machines everywhere in Africa. So they are familiar with that, but you just don't pay. Right. You don't that. pay it's with It's changing. Credit. It's changing, but it's, it's not... Uh, it's not a common thing. Yeah, even uh, the big capital cities, they'll start, they're starting to have places that accept credit cards, especially the big supermarkets. Even when I first started out in Japan, um, that was 2011, right? And I started learning about it. And I, ha I was getting American credit cards, US-based credit cards, because they gave me the points I needed. And what I was doing was getting it sent to my parents' house, and my parents were sending me the credit cards so I could use them in Japan. Um, so, you know, funny in its own right. But then what I realized, I'd get to Japan, and uh, certainly not as not to the degree in Africa, but it's, it is more of a cash-based society. And that's changing as well. But in 2011, 2012, there were a lot of times where I couldn't pay for stuff with credit cards. So here I am trying to make these minimum spends of like, oh, you have to spend $3,000 in three months to get that big chunk of bonus, right? Those 50,000, 60,000, 100,000 points that they give you when you open it up. And I'd be like running around trying to think like, how can I spend this? Because this grocery store doesn't take it. So I'd like drive to another one. You know, I had to like change my lifestyle around in order to hit sometimes hit these minimum spends because certain places wouldn't take credit cards. And then it became stuff where I'd be like, hey, mom, uh, don't even send me the credit card. Can you buy the stuff you need in America on it? And then just send me the money to my bank account because it's becoming too much of a hassle. So I certainly experienced <laughs> that. Like, hey, how do I do it if I'm living in another country? Like, obviously, I can get U.S. credit cards, come U.S. citizen and all that. But how do I do it? So, yeah, for, for a little while there, I was, uh, I was towing that line, which was a pretty funny thing to add on top of you know, the whole situation of living there was like, I was trying to play these credit card games to get all these points, but it wasn't as easy as just, yeah, going down to your local store here in the U S and buying whatever you need on credit card. Yeah. And you have to balance that whole objective of wanting to get all these things at the same time, not completely screwing up your life. Right. Right. And, and that's one of the, <laughs> but of course a nerd like you will do that. <laughs> right. And, and that's, ex I actually had to, uh, and that's a huge part of the course. The, the big thing we always preach is, and this comes back to with credit cards. Anytime we talk about it, we're like, if you don't have a credit score above 700, a, you're not going to get, I'm not going to nerd out too much here, but a, you're not going to get the credit cards you need to get. And B, don't even begin to start doing this if you're not going to pay it off every month in full. I mean, every single card I have is set to yeah. auto pay. You know, I understand how it does it. So I always tell people, start off slow, get one card. Like I had zero credit cards to my name when I was 28. And this was the reason I got them was to start getting miles. And I started off slow. I got one. I, I figured out how to use. It. I figured out how to pay it off. I figured out, you know, where the points were going, like all that kind of stuff. And then I was like, okay, now it's time for me to get another. So that's a big thing is like, we don't want people doing it who are going to end up screwing themselves over. It's only for the people who have good credit, who have, who have paid off, who understand it, to take advantage of the perks. Essentially, you know, credit cards give you the points to build loyalty, right? And if you're not taking advantage of it, then you're shooting yourself in the foot. Um, so, yeah, for the people who are, you know, have good credit scores and have taken care of their credit and have that advantage, then take advantage of that, right? It's It's worth it to do it. So that's kind of like the caveat as well, like, Make sure you're doing it the right way. Yeah. The thing is, is that I'm also worried about, like, I know I don't like to pay for an annual fee just to have a credit card. I, I do recognize that it's eventually worth it. If you do indeed spend $10,000 or more on credit cards per year, it comes out to pay for itself, I, I suppose. But that's the other problem I sometimes have with this whole game is that 
then I'm all of a sudden going to start buying shit that I don't right. need. Right. Well, that he, right. And again, with a caveat, I always tell people like, you got a credit card. That doesn't mean go buy a TV, a couch, and a new dog, right? What it means is <laughs> go to the grocery store and buy the groceries that you would get. Um, you know, for me, I'm, I'm pretty frugal. Um, you know, if, if you ever see our site or this or our podcast, you know that. My wife is, is a little less frugal. But the point is that, I, you know, for me, I'm only ever using it on the stuff that I would buy anyway, that I would buy on a debit or credit or, or, or cash anyway. Um, and so that's never been an issue for me. And when, and I can tell when people like ask me if it's right for them just by talking to them, usually, Hey, are you going to be a, a person who's going to do this the right way? Or is it going to be detrimental to you? And if it, if I ever get the inkling that it is, I'm like, don't even get involved, like figure everything else out first. It's not worth it. The free flight that you get is not going to make up for the fact that you're paying these huge balances. Like just don't even do it. Get your credit in order first, then come back and talk to me, you know? Yeah. Uh, well, last question on credit card before we move on to your um, question. I want to talk about your location-dependent sure. travel stuff. But before I do that, just what's your favorite credit card if yep. overall or do you not yeah, have one? Yeah, I, I certainly do. Um, and it's usually the one I recommend to most people because it's the easiest to use. It's has the best points right now and things change. Um and so if you want like that one, if you're like, I only want one, I want one good travel credit card, that would be the Chase Sapphire Preferred. And, um, they're, they're, and that costs money, though. That does cost. Yeah, a... that has a $95 annual fee. Um, oh. Yeah. So they actually have a, a higher version, which is the one that I use called the Chase Sapphire Reserve, which has a $450 annual fee. But there's like perks that that I use at make it worth. So they give you $250 in travel credit. So if I buy a flight with it for 250 bucks, I get that back right away. And I obviously I'm going to buy or do some traveling in a year. Right. Uh, they give you like TSA pre-check. They pay for that. Um, they give you lounge access, all that kind of stuff. But that's like, if you, if you're someone who's going to travel a lot, you might want to check out the, the chase Sapphire reserve. But if you're just a regular person, um, chase Sapphire reserve, uh, preferred the, the lower version, is uh is the one that I would recommend because you earn chase points and uh really quickly those can either be used as cash. So if you just want any flight in the world, you can use those chase points. Same as if you went to Kayak or Expedia or any of those to buy a flight, you just go to Chase's website and you buy a flight with your points. So they act the same as as cents, as dollars, right? So that gets you on any flight in the world. So if it's a five hundred dollar flight, it's gonna be like forty thousand points. Okay. So that there's no blackouts, nothing like that. You can book Flights, hotels, car rentals. So that's a really easy way to do it. But they also transfer to United, Southwest, and things like that if you want to use them as miles. And sometimes that gives you better value depending on what flights you're going to be booking. But they, they, yeah, they have that flexibility of working both those ways, which is nice. They're not just airline miles, and they're not just like Capital One points that are cash. They can actually be used as both. And if anybody's listening to this, go to extrapackofpeanuts.com, and right at the top on the menu bar, there's a button you click on travel credit cards yep. use that link because trav will get a little commission off that and it's not going to cost you anything to to do that right right so, right yep. so it, it, it's a good way to help trav out and at the same time find out the best deals on travel credit yep. cards that's uh 
I will look into that. Although I'm, I just, I'm, I'm, I just can't get into this idea of paying ninety-five dollars for the pleasure of using somebody's credit card. I just, I'm going to have to wrap my head around that. We'll, we'll, but we'll get I you some definitely. miles, and we'll get you on a flight for free, and then you'll be like, oh, like my dad was the same way. <laughs> and I always tell people when like spouses will usually come, they're like, oh, well, I really into this. I understand, it, but my spouse is on board. They're skeptical, and I usually I'm like, that's good because I'd rather someone be skeptical than like just listen to everything I say and be like, yeah, I'm going to do it because then that's you know. That's I'd rather you be skeptical and then figure it out and understand it. Right. But my dad was skeptical and my mom was like, yeah, yeah, yeah this sounds good. I'll get a card or two. And uh, then I flew him to Japan first class to visit me when I was living there. And, you know, we had a great time, all this. And I get a text. He hadn't even gone on the flight back yet, but he was sitting in like the first class lounge in Tokyo. And it was like he had like a glass of champagne or something. He shoots me a text. He goes, so what card am I getting? And I just like. Yeah, well, that's how you convince a skeptic is like show them the the value of it, right? Because, you know, he's not going to fly first class ever, like if he's paying for it. But he was able to have that experience because I had miles to be able to do it with it for him. So, um, yeah. So I always tell people, like, show them what's possible and then let them make the decision. So, dude, maybe I'll get you on a flight. Tell me what you need. We'll get you on a flight and uh, and we'll go from there. I will <laughs> definitely think about it deeply and profoundly. I'm, I'm just not there yet. But, totally uh, but fine. like I said, it's because I'm still in Africa right now. And so when I get back to America and all of a sudden the world of credit cards, I can buy chewing gum for with a credit card. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Something is unthinkable in Africa. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> then, then maybe I'll I'll do it. Um, OK, so location independent travel what tell us tell us a little bit about that yeah i for me i I say there's like a few really big changes that happened in my life that's that's led me to where i am one is the the idea of frequent fire miles which we touched on which just really opened up the door of travel to me because now all of a sudden i was able to take these trips and if i'm not paying for airfare or paying like a little bit for airfare like even yesterday i looked to book a flight to budapest it was going to cost me five dollars so okay if i'm only spending five dollars to fly from philly to budapest like that makes it infinitely more feasible for me to do so I, what that was a huge change this idea of freaking fire miles and allowing me to travel and that's what really kicked off the idea that we want to travel so i was living in japan at that point and um then i started i i did not know the term digital nomad i did not know the term location independence but I knew what I wanted. And has that ever happened to you, Francis, where like in your head, you know yeah. what you want, but you don't know what like it has a name or anything? Has that ever right, happened to right. you for certain things? Yes. Like mass murderer. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> I am. Um, yeah. So, I never knew I wanted to be a mass I murderer. never knew. Now someone put a name to it. It makes it real. Um, so Serial I, killer. <laughs> even better. <laughs> there you go. I had this idea that I wanted to travel like anywhere. Like I liked living in Japan, but I even though it was different, I was still tied there because my job was there. And I knew that I wanted this when my buddy who was living and teaching at an American school in Rio got me an interview. And then I ended up getting the job to be the history teacher, a 10th grade history teacher at the American school in Rio. You had like all Brazilian holidays and all U.S. holidays off and summer. So you were working like half the year, maybe. Um, yeah, I think they literally had 150 days of school, right? So less than half your days of the year you're working. You got a uh, condo on Ipanema Beach, um, a two-bedroom condo paid for by the school, you, and you got paid like 55000 US. And then obviously, if you stayed there, it would, it would move up. So I thought, okay, this is about as good as it gets if I want to stay being a teacher. And I, at that moment, like they offered me the job, and I sat down with Heather, and I was like, Heth, I, I just I don't know what it is, but I don't want to have to live in Brazil for two years. Like we just did two years in Japan. 
I don't want someone to tell me that I have to live there, even though I know it would be awesome. And, and it's probably the, one of the best situations you can have living in Brazil. I just, I don't want to commit to that. And if, if Heather Sorry, was... Which city again? Can you remind it me? It was in Rio. It was in Rio. Okay. Yeah. And uh, if Heather was on, she would agree. She'd be like, yeah, that's because you hate commitment. Have, like, you, yeah. have you been to Rio since? I had, nev- I had never been, and I still have never been to Rio. Um, but she would say... When, when you go to Uruguay, make a stop over at Rio. Yeah. I, it's, it's, I mean, once I get into that region, I think I'm going to have a hard time leaving, just knowing my personality <laughs> and knowing kind of the vibe down there. But yeah. I, I just... You know, I didn't want someone to tell me that I had to be there for two years. Um, and I thought, I said to him, I'm like, what are we going to do? Like, this is an issue, right? Like, this is a great job, a great opportunity, and I don't want to do it. And so I just thought, well, what if I could, like, travel and, and work from anywhere? And how is that even possible? And I honestly had no idea how it was possible, but I had started my website by that point. And again, I didn't even know how to make money or anything about online business. But I started looking at that then as a business, like, wait, how could I make money with extra pack of peanuts? And of course, there's a thousand ways and I've tried a thousand things and some are good, some work and some don't. And and it's been, you know, it's been now six years since I started it. But the idea was that I wanted to travel when I wanted and I didn't mind working hard, but I didn't want to have to be stuck in a place. And then when someone said the term location independence to me, I thought, Yes, that it now you sum up everything I want in my head. I want to be able to work and I want to be able to live and do it from anywhere. So obviously that means like creating something that you can do online. Um, and so that led me to to start extra pack of peanuts and, and to think of it as business. And then, you know, I got my feet wet with that and we started making some money. I'm not going to give the whole long story of that, but there was a lot of ups and a lot of downs, including the main one of when I moved back from Japan thought I was going to move to an apartment because we were making like $6,000 a month. And then that went to zero on my 30th birthday because um, of a long story, nothing I did wrong. And I was like, live with my mom and dad as a married man who was 30 with Heather for like seven months and worked like 80 hours a week and was making $1,500 a month. So certainly a lot of downs, man. And I'll be the first person to share those because I don't want people to think it's easy or, or that like if if they're struggling through it, that they're in the minority because everyone, and you could speak to this too, Francis, running your own businesses and doing this, it's certainly a struggle. But um, $1,500 a month, you were doing that for doing your podcast and all yeah, the other so stuff. Yeah, so EPOP was bringing me in $1,500. It, it was bringing me in 6000 when I left Japan. And I thought, or right, right as I was getting ready to leave Japan, and in those three months when I was home after that, it was making me 6000 a month. That was our high, our high level mark. Usually it was like 3000 but then we hit 6000 I thought, cool, this is everything I've worked hard for for a year and a half. Like, mm-hmm. this is paying off. I didn't make a dime for a while. Now it's paying off. And then, yeah, January 3rd, I guess it was 2013, on my 30th birthday, uh, I got an email and they were like, basically the one credit card company was like, we don't like you telling people about these credit cards which were the better ones, we want you to tell them about these ones, which are the worst ones. And I said, no. And we were fighting this battle forever. And then finally, like, all right, well, we're not going to pay you for telling them about anyone because we don't like that you're doing it your way. And so it was mm-hmm. it was a hill worth dying on, of course, for sure. But it sucked when I got that email. And then, like, I was like, okay, now, Heather, we have zero. Like, now we're down to zero, basically. And that's why now I've created my own products and rely on myself because, yeah, I don't want to be beholden to someone else. But... Long story short, that led to location independence. We built a business that was able to be location independent. And then what happened was people, you know, so 
Francis, when people say they can't travel, what are the two main reasons they usually give you or me? Like, what do we hear all the time? Time and money. Time and money. Time and money. Exactly. Time and money. So I was helping over the money part. Hey, get frequent fire miles. Hey, use this thing called Airbnb, which was kind of new then instead of staying at hotels, like all these ways to travel cheaper. But they were like, they come back from a two week vacation. Like, I don't want to come back. Like, but I have to come back for my job. How do you do it, Trav? And I just was like, well, I have this website and I work online. And I, it kind of happened without me knowing it. I mean, I knew I was doing it, but it didn't, I never thought I could teach someone it. And they're like, well, I want to do that. How do you do it? And I was like, oh, I don't know, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so more and more people kept asking. And I was like, well, how can I give them time? And the, re- the way to give them time is to give them their own business or their own freelancing thing or something like that, because then they're making the decisions when to work and where to travel. So um, I just started helping people with that. And uh, we were able to launch a community off of that called Location Indie, I-N-D-I-E dot com with the sole purpose of bringing people together who either want to be location independent or are location independent. Because what happened with me for a couple of years, I, I tried to learn it all on my own and I didn't really know anyone in my life who was doing it. I didn't have any role models, you know, at least not like I, I'd follow people online, but no one that I could talk to, no one face to face. And then I met a, f- a friend of mine, Jason from Zero to Travel. He was doing a similar thing. We just started getting on calls almost every day, like, hey, I'm struggling with this, and he'd help me, and I'd help him. And we just thought, wow, this is way easier when you have someone to rely on and to support you, just like anything. But, you know, um, we didn't have anyone before that. And then we, we found another friend who was doing it. And so then we thought people were coming to us asking us, where do I find people who want to be location independent? Like, where do I, people in my real life don't understand this. They don't get it. They might think it's a cool idea, but they can't actually give me advice and support me. Um, and so we started a community based on that where people pay $49 a month and you have this, we have our own social network. We have our own groups. We bring on experts every month to teach a certain skill. We have a course in there, um, that, that kind of takes you from what picking the idea you want to go with all the way through how to build a product and market it and market your skills and freelance and all that kind of stuff that people get when they come in so they can go through that course to help them gain some clarity. And uh, that's that's been three and a half years, and that's one of the best things I've ever done as far as for myself and also for really helping people who want this lifestyle. It's been really cool to see the transition and the transformation that people are able to make and leave their jobs and, you know, do the, the end goal, which for you and I, Francis, is traveling and seeing the world. I mean, it's all based that's around right. everything we do is based around the end goal of how can we get people who want to go see the world out there seeing it and actually getting to do it through Jetto, through frequent fire miles, and through helping them become location independent so that they don't only have two or three weeks of vacation. And you are the king of travel podcasts. And so kind of transitioning from what you just talked about, location independent, and kind of have all the lessons, the hard lessons that you learned. And, and you're right, it's not easy. Uh, certainly my income is pretty pathetic as well. <laughs> or at least probably yours is much higher than mine. So I had some questions about, let's say somebody's listening to this and say, you know, I listen to podcasts all the time. I want to start my own podcast. Um, it might be about finance or it might be about technology or it might be about gardening or whatever their podcast is. I want to get into some of your tips and and, and lessons learned from having done this for several years and, and having created the number one travel podcast out there want to get into it now start off by one tough question which is what's an advice some advice that you sometimes hear about podcasting that you think is stupid and full of shit you know what is an example of that you know some bullshit thing that everybody talks about and you're like you know what you don't actually have to do that i'll give you one example maybe that you think it everybody says when you launch the podcast 
you need to put out uh, four or five episodes all at once and you got to get on the iTunes new and noteworthy list. And other people have said, no, that's not true. That's not a big deal. What's your take on that? And, and is there any other advice that you think that is sometimes bandied about that you think is kind of overrated? I, yeah, I'll start. I think the overrated advice, especially from people trying to like sell podcasting courses and stuff like that, is that you don't have to, this is for anything, but you don't have to have it all figured out when you start. And you also don't have to have the fanciest equipment. And that's from personal experience. When I started, I knew nothing. And there was, not that there weren't podcasts, there certainly were, but there's no podcasting courses. There's one website I followed pretty um, religiously called podcastanswerman.com. I don't even know if, I, I assume Cliff still has his website, but, um, you know, and everyone's like, oh, you got to have the, the $300 mic and the mixing board and this and that and blah, 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 blah. And so I went out to like a guitar center and bought all the stuff. And I told, I asked the guy, I'm like, can I return any of this stuff? And he's like, yeah, sure. I'm like, cause they get people in there all the time. We want to try stuff out. I'm like, I'm going to try all these mics out, all this stuff out. And can I, can I return? And he's like, yeah, cool. So I tried $300 mics, $350 mics, blah, 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 blah. And then I found one, the one I still use to this day, like years later. And it was at that point, $30 on Amazon. Now, I think it's up to like 60 or 65. And honestly, I think because I've probably told so many people about it and, and like then people who have started podcasting tell people about it. I, I think there might have been a little like Trav bumping the price up. So I apologize for that. Maybe I'm just maybe that's just <laughs> egotistical. But either way, a lot of people now use it. And it sounds... Is it the Audio-Technica yeah, one? Yep, it's the Audio-Technica one. It plugs into your computer through your USB, or it can plug in through an XLR cable to to like a mixer. So the, the reason I got it... It's the a ATR 2100. Yep, the ATR2100. Yep. by the way, once again, a tip. If you want to help out Trav, go to extrapackofpeanuts.com slash resources, scroll down, find it, all the links there, yep. and he'll get a commission on it when you buy it through Amazon, and it doesn't cost you anything extra to buy it through his. Yep, yep, and um, and, and the reason I got it was because I knew I was going to be traveling, right? So I thought, hey, do these other mics sound better? I mean, sometimes, to be honest, they they didn't really sound better because I wasn't in a studio. If you were in a soundproof studio, and this is what people in studios use, and, and it has a little more depth in your voice and stuff like that. Well, okay, I'm in my – I didn't even have a home office at that point, so I'm like in a bedroom. It didn't matter. It was it, – it sounded worse usually because it was too echoey. So I got this one mm -hmm. because it plugged right into my computer so I could literally run – I could bring my mic and my computer and the one cable, and I could record from the road. And uh, it's still the one I use today. And, um, so that would be my advice is that or the kind of the overrated stuff is you don't need all the equipment. I would tell you actually don't even start out with all the equipment because you could easily spend a thousand dollars and all that stuff. Get one mic, start recording your stuff, see how you like it. You might not even like podcasting. Like Francis said, he started one like seven years ago and then stopped, right? Maybe you find it's not your cup of tea and that's totally fine, but you'd rather spend $60 on one mic than a thousand dollars on a whole setup. So that would be my biggest piece of advice for starting is get one mic, start recording. I, I would also say as far as the new and noteworthy for iTunes, I actually, for, for a few reasons, tell people that they should start with a decent amount of episodes at the same time. And the reason is because I didn't when I started. And here's what happened. I just recorded one episode and then like didn't have any schedule, right? I like recorded one, I put it out. I recorded another, probably came out like two weeks later. Then maybe another that was like three weeks later. What happened was if someone listened to those first couple episodes and liked it, well, cool. 
but they had no idea when anything else was coming out and they only could listen to like one or two. If you record, I say at a minimum five, but let's say you have five or 10 episodes and you release them all at once to kick off your show. A, it is going to help you get on new and noteworthy for iTunes, which never hurts because you know, you're, you obviously it's like ranking on Google. It never hurts when a third party is promoting your stuff. You know, so that's that's a benefit. But I think even the bigger benefit is if you put out a podcast, Francis, and you had like, let's say seven episodes to start and they all came out on the same day. And I like picked the one that I wanted to listen to the most. I'm like, oh, this person's really interesting. I listened to it and I thought, that's really cool. Like that was a that was a good podcast. All right. I want to listen to a second one. I could. Right. And so if, if someone listens to maybe two or three of your podcasts, they start getting pretty hooked. And so you want the people who like your stuff in the beginning to be able to binge on your on your podcast. And you also want to be really clear of when stuff comes out. So that was a mistake I made because I didn't know anything about podcasting when I started. You know, I would if I was doing it over, I would come out with a bunch of episodes in the beginning so that people could binge through it and really love it. And it would help with iTunes. And I would also be clear. I'd be like, OK, guys, we're doing an episode every week or you're getting an episode every month just so they knew what to expect. Because if people don't know what to expect, even if they like it, they're going to forget about it and they're going to go on to the next thing because they have thousands and thousands and thousands of other options out there to listen to. So you want those people who like your stuff to really know what to expect and to give them enough that they're that they get hooked on 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 what you're doing. And one of those options I was thinking about doing for my podcast is that just launching one per day instead of all, let's say, 10 episodes all at once. Sure do 10 days, 10 episodes, you know, one per day, and then telling people it's going to come out once a week, but these first 10 days, you're going to get 10 episodes. Right. And that's, and you, that's, yeah, you could do that too. That too, that's definitely in my mind, almost the same as putting them all out the same day. Cause you're at least giving right. people something right off the bat. Um, so as long as you're batching them kind of in that first window of whatever you want to say week or two weeks, I think that's mm -hmm. enough. If you're giving someone one a day, then that's plenty for the first 10 days. As long as you're just, you just want people to ride, you want that momentum to keep going, right? You want them to ride that momentum of your podcast. So if you did one on the first day and they listened, then, you know, and probably you're not going to have that many listeners on the first day. But if the people who did would be like, okay, well, one's coming out tomorrow. I know what to expect. Cool. Let me get into it. So at least they have stuff that they can get ingrained on. Now, now you've gotten tens of thousands of regular listeners and you've gotten what three million downloads? Yes, yeah, somewhere. I, I stopped checking the stats okay. because it's yeah. You know, at some point, I'm like, ah, it's it's you can't working. Count that high. It's working, right? But um, <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, I but yeah. So, but my question is, is is how did you how what's your tips on on building that audience and going from a hundred listeners to a thousand to ten thousand to fifty thousand? Is it uh, one tip I I can give myself? I think this is a is a, a decent tip is just having trying to get on other people's podcasts yep. and as well as bringing people like you who have a, who have a good audience onto your show. Those are, that's one way. What other ways would you suggest of kind of building the audience? Was there anything you did? You know, it's the old 20, 80 rule. Right. Is there, what's 20% of your effort that really gave you a big bang for your buck? Yeah. So here, I, I, I don't know how many of these tips I have. So I was going to say, here's five tips, but then I was counting in my head. I didn't know if it was five. One would be to ride the momentum in the beginning, just like we talked about. I did not do that because I didn't know that was a strategy at all, <laughs> but I would definitely do that because that's, if you do get on iTunes, new and noteworthy, people are going to find it. So that gives you a nice little bump and it, 
and it gives your listeners who are starting, everything we just said applies to that. So I would definitely do that in the beginning is ride that momentum, put out a decent amount of episodes. Second would be to stay consistent. So if you say you're going to do a podcast a week, do a podcast a week. So I would always err on the side of saying less. So if you think you want to do two a week, tell people one a week. And then if you, I never under, hold on, but I never understand really why that's such a big deal. Like, so what if you come out, like I was thinking of that, that guy, my favorite blog out there is actually wait, but why? You right. Know them? Yes. Uh, he's been on a, our and, podcast. Awesome guy. Tim Urban. Yeah. He's Tim great. Urban. Yeah. He's great. So, so Tim Urban, I love his podcast. And originally it was like every Tuesday and then it became every sometimes or whatever it is. And then eventually it became completely inconsistent. Now he pumps out a, a post once every three months or whatever. Right, right. If but, that. But it doesn't seem to affect him. And so I'm just wondering, I mean, like I agree you don't want to say, you know, once a week and then you come out once every three months. But to me, it's like, is it really a big deal if you're, you're like once every 10 days and sometimes every five days and once every two weeks? I mean, does it really matter? I mean, is somebody going to have I, a shit fit? I, no. I, so I don't think I think it's for two reasons. One, he's able to do that because he's gotten so big that his people right. love him and will check back on his stuff no matter what. And he has a bunch of content to consume. So every time I go and wait, but why? I, I like, you know, if there's a new article, I read it. But I'll go through all his archives and I'll read the ones I read before because they're so good or I'll read ones I hadn't read before. So once you have a bank of content, I think it's you have a you have more leeway. So now, for example, I have I say we come out every week and I have certainly missed some weeks. I'd say maybe we miss five weeks every year. And what happens then, Trap, when you miss a week? Do you happens. get like no no angry emails? No. And no, I mean, here and there, people are like, oh, I missed you. Like, why, where was the podcast this week? Every few and far between. So it's not really the blowback from from listeners. But we also have 350 episodes. So unless you've listened to all of them, like, let's say you always listen to the newest one and one doesn't come out and you're like, oh, I want to go in there. I think a lot of people now are in that binge mindset. And I certainly am with podcasts too, because I don't listen to a lot. But when I do, I go on binges. And that's why Netflix puts everything out at once. So you could watch like the whole season at once. So but you can do that if you have content. So someone could find my podcast now. And even if I didn't put out a new podcast for the next five months, they have 350 episodes to get through. So by the time they work their way back to your episode, episode 41, they're like, you know, there's a lot of things to listen to. So you have a little more leeway when you have content already that allows people to, to dive in. But if you're just starting, I think consistency is key because A, it's going to keep you accountable. And B, it's going to keep that momentum going that we talked about. So if you say, I'm going to do it every week, if you miss a week, I don't think it's the end of the world. But I think mentally, does that mean you're going to miss another week and another week? And, you know, so you have that. And mm. also, if you miss a couple weeks and someone was really getting into it and you only have five episodes, let's say, and they're like, oh, I listened to those first five and now I want his, Francis' podcast next week and he, and he listens to episode six. And then he wants episode seven next week and you miss it maybe he comes back the following week. But what if you miss another week? Then probably you've lost them. So once you have a build up, I think you're a, you have more leeway. But I would definitely be consistent in the beginning. And if you think you're going to do two a week, say one. And if you do two, you say, hey, this is a bonus episode. No one's going to hate you mm. for that. Or you put it in the queue. And this is what I'm bad at. And I, I, I did it pretty well for a little while and then I got off it. But you put it in the queue and you say, okay, for that week that I do miss because I'm traveling or something came up, now I have one that I can put out later. You know, that's always a good place to be. So I would definitely say be consistent in the beginning. Um, I did one thing. 
I've only ever tried one thing that really jumped up our listenership. Um, and everything else has been for the most part a slow growth, but I did a thing where I did a thing, uh, it was called podcast gluttony and we did it September, 2014. It was supposed to be for a month and it's where we put out a show every single weekday. So it was five. So it was like 20 some shows in that month instead of four. And we did for it extra pack of peanuts. Yeah. For extra pack of peanuts. Yep. For our podcast. And it was when we were about a hundred episodes in and I saw some growth, but it was starting to stagnate. I'm like, how can I. Maybe, maybe this will like ramp it up. Right. Um, and my buddy had said he saw growth when he tried it out. So I did it and it was September 20, I think it was 2014. Um, and then it kind of kept going into October a bit and we did it a little longer than we originally thought. And obviously it wasn't sustainable for us because it was, it was just too, too many, like I couldn't keep doing it, but we did see a big spike in traffic and a lot of that stayed. Now, some of the spike was because we were just putting out more episodes. So if if we have one listener and all of a sudden he has 22 episodes to listen to in a month versus four, mm. well, that's 22 downloads instead of four, right? So some of it was because people were doing it, but I think some of it was that people got it into their habit. Like they just started really binging on it and they started telling other people and new people started hearing it and they got it, they kind of got used to it. So that's something you can try. I wouldn't try it right off the bat because you're probably going to burn yourself out. But if you've been doing it for a little while, then you could maybe try that out. Like try to do five a week and see if that helps like kind of kick it into high gear. And the other piece of advice you kind of touched on, Francis, is collaborating. So I've done stuff with other travel, and I should probably do more of this, but Jason from Zero to Travel and I do a lot of this because we we both run Location Indie together. He has a podcast. I have a podcast, uh, Travel One, and then we do our Location Indie podcast as well every week. So we'll do things where I'll go, we'll do, I'll go on his show and we'll do our top 20 favorite cities and we'll do like 20 to number 20 to number 11 on his show. And then we'll do number 10 to number one on my show. So like, Hey, if you guys listen to zero travel and you've never come over to the EPOP show, come check this out to get the second half of it. And we, it's fun for us because we get to be on each other's shows and it gives, even though we have a lot of crossover audience, there still are people that find his show that don't know about mine and vice versa. So we've seen that help us kind of jointly build our respective audiences as well. Yeah, I've, I've, I listen to you far more. I have subscribed to his show, but I just, for whatever reason, nothing against him. I, in fact, I, but I rarely listen to his show, and yet I listen to yours a lot more. So, I, But it's just yeah, one of those things. It's that, just preference, but, right? But, but he's also extremely, uh, he's, he's, if he's probably the second most popular travel show. Yeah, I mean, we go back and forth. We audience. always exchange numbers sometimes, and some months his are bigger than mine, and some months mine are bigger. Than, and and you never like I don't know. I have yet to find a rhyme or reason for like for that for why ours differentiate sometimes, but it just just happens, you know. What about monetizing? What's your take on it? I don't focus much on that. Maybe to my peril, but I don't really think so because when I started the podcast, my goal was to produce an awesome show that. Like no one was doing a pod. This comes back to the whole Jetto app, right? I wanted a podcast to listen to where people were interviewing other people who had amazing stories. Like, for example, your story, right? When I first started, all I wanted to do was highlight people with amazing stories. I didn't care about destinations. And now we do do destination podcasts and people love it. But everything that I saw was destination focused. And I wanted to highlight the stories of the people who were traveling or the stories of the people in that area. And so... My whole goal was just to create something I wanted to listen to. And that's probably the best piece of advice I can give people starting podcasts or blogs or anything. Create what you want to listen to. If you love long form podcasts that go an hour and a half, 
do that. Like I don't hold my podcast to any time limit. Sometimes it goes longer. Sometimes it goes shorter. You know, if you're someone who loves the quick 15 minute podcast, then maybe try to make one of those. But for me, I just wanted to create a podcast that I would listen to. And um, as far as monetization, then I it happened very organically for me. Um, Tortuga Backpacks has been the sponsor of our show for like three years running now. And we have a great relationship. We've helped them grow their brand, which is something I'm really proud of. I mean, they started, they had one backpack. Now they have like four or five lines of backpacks. And I know who buys through through our um, through our coupon code. And I get to see those numbers each month. And it's not like a majority of people who buy Tortuga backpacks anymore. But in the beginning, it really gave them a good push, which was awesome. And so they've been a sponsor of our show. And that just happened because I met their founder. He was like, hey, can I send you a backpack? I tried it out. I'm like, I really like this. It's a small company. I love supporting small companies. Would you guys be interested in a podcast uh, sponsorship? I've never done it with anyone. Um, I'd love to have you guys on. And we, we came up with a deal that I thought was really good for him. And I was making more than zero, which is what I was making when I had no sponsor. And I've kept them at the same price the whole, like for three and a half years, because it just, it just worked for me. And I, I, I see the podcast not as something that is going to inherently make me a lot of money. There certainly are people whose main job is a podcast and they make a lot off it. For me, I use it as like not even a marketing arm because that sounds like scammy, but I use it as a way for people to know who I am, to love what we do, to understand the extra pack of peanuts brand and Jetto and all that we do. And then they can make their own decision to go get our app, to go get our frequent fire bootcamp to do that. But really for me, it's about building a relationship with people that goes a bit deeper than a blog because people can read your blog and kind of know who you are, but they could be reading and doing 10 other things at once. When someone listens to me in their ear every week for an hour or so, I mean, I've had people email me like, who have said, like, literally, we've listened to 350 of your episodes. Um, and I'm like, oh, dear Lord, you listen to, like, episodes 1 through 20? Like, good for you. But I hope you had it on, like, double speed, right? Because I listen to it now and I talk, <laughs> like, slow and all that kind of stuff. But, I mean, those are people who love what we do. And so you build a relationship with them. And to me, that was the main goal versus monetizing. I thankfully, though, the flip side of that, because podcasting has become much, much bigger thanks to Serial, which like blew up the idea of podcasting. Now I don't even have to explain what a podcast is. I used to have to say, I have a podcast. People are like, oh, what's that? I'm like, uh, it's like radio on demand. You know how you have like a DVR. Do for I need your an TV? iPod to listen to it? <laughs> right. I, I'm like, you, uh, you, it's like my show, but you can listen to it anytime. They're like, what do you mean? I'm like, you know, when you, uh, DVR a TV show and then you can listen to it at any, or watch it at any point. They're like, yeah. I'm like, okay. Kind of like that. Um, but now I'm like, I have a podcast. People are like, oh, cool. Like cereal. And I'm like, yeah, except it's not, uh, produced by like an amazing producer and we don't have like a team of. 50 people doing it and a budget, but, um, now podcast, but what's your, what's, what's big. your problem with, uh, not uh, with advertising? Are you afraid to turn off your listeners if you have too many ads? Uh, no, I don't have any problem with it. I just, um, right now Tortuga is our sponsor and I actually, uh, there's another company that I've worked with for years. And by that, I mean, I've worn their stuff. They've sent it to me and I've, I've told everyone I know about it and it's called, they're called Bluffworks, and they have what I consider hands down the best travel pants in the world. They have a blazer now. They're coming out with a shirt. So Stefan, their, their founder is a good friend of mine, a really good friend. And um, they've actually wanted to sponsor too. So I don't have any turnoff. I'm not against sponsorship. I am just only going for people whose stuff I already use and love and would promote anyway. 
and so that it's really like a win-win-win. Um, so I'm not going after, if you listen to some podcasts, they're like, we're sponsored by MailChimp or like Mailboxes, et cetera. I don't even know if that's one. But they're like all these random companies that have nothing to do with their podcast. I don't care about that. I'm going to go after travel companies that I love. Um, and so we might bring on a second sponsor. And again, I could, based on our downloads, I could charge those guys more money. But for me, I want it to be, uh, I really want it to be this this win for everyone. And I want, I just really love helping smaller companies grow and they're people that I love. So I'm not, I guess what I'm saying is I'm cool if they want to pay me and I'm cool if they're a sponsor, but I'm not going to nickel and dime and use it as the only monetization strategy for me. If someone is starting a podcast, you can do that now. Podcasting is big enough that we get approached by advertisers quite a bit now. And obviously, like I said, we turn down all of them except for possibly um, my one buddy's company, Bluffworks. But there is much more of a market now for people wanting to be podcast sponsors because they see the value in it. Um, whereas before they, they didn't and you had to convince them. And now I don't think you have to convince people. Now so many companies want into it because they see how rabid podcast listeners are. Bluffworks. You've made me intrigued by Bluffworks. I love them. What's their pants? What, what is their, their trousers they, like? They're... Uh, they're the best, man. They, uh, they, they, I only wear their chinos. They started with wearing, a, uh, making a pant that was for, um, the whole goal of Stefan was like, uh, he, he loves, he's like a climber too, man. And he loves hiking. So he wanted to make a pant that he could wear to the office and then wear out, you know, and for a hike after work. And so it, they have ones called their originals that are like more dress panty kind of, uh, more khakis like, um, and I wore them when I used to be a teacher, but now I, they have a chino, which is like a flat front, and it looks awesome. It fits me really well. They're super stretchy. It's 100% polyester, so you basically don't have to wash them. They're not waterproof, but uh, water-resistant. Um, and when I wear them, like, you could work out in them. Like, I, they're stretchy enough that you, like, I've run in them. I've hiked in them. Um, yeah, so that's their Chino pant is the one that I love and they have a blazer now too. And I, you know me a, a bit, Francis, I would never wear a blazer, right? Like, like <laughs> blazer, what am I, but, but the, he was like, I swear this is the most comfortable thing you wear. It's wrinkle free. So all their stuff is wrinkle free. So he has a video where he like jumps in a lake with it, rings it out. There's no wrinkles on it. So I was like, let me try this. And I, I wear it now, like instead of a hoodie, like if Heather and I went to a show in London, right? Where like wearing a blazer was kind of nice like it felt a little nice to dress up because i'm usually scrubbing it so um they have their blazer it's all wrinkle free and now they have dress shirt not dress shirts but um yeah kind of like button down shirts that could be dressy enough but could be worn casually as well so um they're starting to come out with more and more stuff and i think they're coming out with a denim line too which um you know would replace like someone wearing jeans um but they'd be more for travel so and they don't look like travel pants right they're not the thousand pocket zip off anything like that they look like very nice um chino pants so that's what i like about so them these too. so these sponsor deals that you have trav is they are all paying you let's say a monthly fee or they pay you by the episode right. yep and then they give you and on top of that they give you some sort of commission on every order that goes through your site right and that's kind of, and i love doing it that way um i don't know how quote-unquote regular podcast sponsors work because i haven't dealt with someone who sponsored other podcasts so i don't know what mailchimp does but for me i told them like all right let's do a per episode thing 
So it's, you know, pay per episode. And then, yeah, so when we give our code out, so when we're doing our Tortuga Backpack sponsorship, we'll tell people, hey, if you use this coupon code when you buy a backpack, you're going to get 10% off, which is great because it's, again, a win for Tortuga because people are buying their backpacks, a win for my listeners because they're getting uh, to know about a good travel backpack and they're getting 10% off. And then a win for me because anytime someone uses that coupon code, it they know that it's from my show, and then I just get a percentage of those sales. It's not a lot, you know. I'm not going to retire off it. I can't. It's our podcast, even with the amount of listeners we have, isn't isn't our main source of income, and at this point, wouldn't be enough for us to like live off of. But I mean, could it be if 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 I really went after sponsors? Probably. But again, I like that it's working for everyone. And for me, it's kind of like the cherry on top. I love doing the podcast. I would do it anyway. I'm glad someone can pay me for it. I'm glad I can help out other companies. And that to me is more important than saying, oh man, could I maybe make another thousand or 2000 a month from it? Yeah, maybe. But then with the sponsorship, I mean, but it might suck too. Maybe I bring on a sponsor that people are like, this is stupid. I don't want to listen to this, you know? So I, I like the idea that I know wholeheartedly Hey, if I'm sponsoring this, you guys are going to love Bluffworks and you're going to love Tortuga. And Bluffworks isn't even a sponsor, and I'm already giving them credit on this podcast. So there you go, man. <laughs> there you go. Freebies. Yeah, there you go. Uh, is this, is, and this is your full-time thing that you're doing extra pack of peanuts, or do you also sometimes do other co- jobs on the side? Yeah. So totally, um, we've been able to do full-time location independence um, lifestyle since since we moved back from Japan, but like I told people, some of that was me living with my parents for like seven months, but extra pack of peanuts is one of our incomes. Our second is location indie, that community I told you about. So people pay $49 a month uh, to get into that, but we have, you know, a bunch of expenses with that. And it's Jason and I, we also do a a project called the paradise pack, um, which only happens once a year. It's like a a bundle sale of a bunch of e-courses that we put in together and now Jetto as well. So between all four of those things, that is all we do. Um, and to be honest, it's... And the biggest piece of the pie? Um, right now, the biggest piece of the pie is our Paradise Pack project. So it usually brings in about 50 to 60... I'd say probably closer to 60% of our income for the whole year. And the scary part is, and good part, I guess depending on how it goes this year, one week, it's a one-week sale. Now, it takes us about two months to get it ready and you know, at least a month afterwards for like customer service issues and all that. But it's like one week, hopefully the sale goes well. The last two years, I mean, all four years we've done it, it's gone very well. Um, this year, our hope is that it doubles. And if it does, we'll be very, very happy. Um, but it's a one week sale and that brings in about 60% of what we do. And then Jetto isn't bringing in any money really at this point yet. It's brand new. So that's essentially zero. Extra pack of peanuts is probably... probably 30% and then location indie is about 10%. And that's because we don't usually take that money out. We kind of just put it back into the company to like make the, the network better and to do the website. Like, so right now we're not really taking a salary for that. That's more of a like, Hey, this is, this is a long-term play type thing. Right. No, that's great. Now that's, it's very important to spread your bets when you're starting off, because as you discovered, when you had your $6,000 go to zero. Right. D-Day, right? That's, 30th birthday. Yeah. I actually canceled a birthday party birthday. that day. Oh my it God, was bad. Really tough story. I'm like, Heather, tell everyone they're not coming over. She's like, we had this whole party plan. I'm like, that's cool. I'm leaving. Like, I couldn't be around anyone. I was, that was the most depressed I'd ever been in my life, man. So, and the par- and the Paradise Pack, it comes out at the end of May, beginning of June, and it is mainly about 
travel related stuff. Yeah. So if, if anyone, if this comes out early enough, and even if not, we're, we're pretty, we're probably going to do it next year in 2019 again as the sixth year. But this year it's May 20. Why wouldn't you? Right. I Well, I don't know. Because every year we're like, oh, it was so good this year. We got so many amazing products in. Can we pull it off? Like, can we make it better next? Because we always want it to be better. And I'm always worried that we won't be able to. That's 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 why. But then, I don't know. There's so many people out but there. But if it's their half your income of the year. Right, it's right. Like, yeah. But I mean, I also. <laughs> it's hard you to know, say goodbye to It that. is. It is. It's hard to say no. But you do want to make it. You know, you don't want anything to. to you don't ever want to see your businesses on that downward slope of like, oh, wait a second, this isn't as good. Um, but then what I realized is there's so many amazing people out there doing so many cool projects that we're always finding new things. So essentially what the Paradise Pack project is, or Paradise Pack is, May 29th through June 5th in 2018 is when we run it. And next year, it will probably also be similar dates. It's always the Tuesday after Memorial Day. So it's that end of May, very beginning of June. Seven day sale. And what we do is we find the best courses around travel and like building a business. So the whole goal location is, independent. Yes. And that's, so we give you a package that says, if you want to be location independent, here are 15 courses or 20 courses this year that are going to help you do that. So for example, there's one in this year, that's a podcasting course. So some people who get the pack aren't going to care about podcasting, so they won't use it, but other people will. So there's like a podcasting course, how to start a podcast, how to start a blog, um, one is about 21 days to find your passion. So that's for the people who are like, well, I know I want location independence, but I have no idea what I want to do. So we let, we tell you, and we put a roadmap in the paradise pack too. That's one of the changes we made the last couple of years is people were like, we have these 20 courses. Where do we start? So we're like, if you're someone who has all these ideas, you don't know what to do. Start with this course. So like the 21 and days. And you're not creating all this content. No. You're partnering with yeah, other people, we're, content creators. Exactly. We're finding the very best, like the best podcast course out there. We're trying to get them in. The best blogging mm. course, we're trying to get them in. The 21 Days to Your Passion course, which I've gone through, is awesome. We're getting them in. So it's it's all these relationships we've built over the years with people. A lot of people are have been in it for all five years. And then, of course, like probably half the people, because they always create new contents, new courses, stuff like that. And then probably half the people each year are new people that we find. Um, and so this year, it's over five, like $5,000 worth of value. So if you like bought all these courses on your own, it was good, it'd be $5,000. And we sell it at 90% off. So this year we say, I, I'm 95% sure this is going to be the price. Uh, we say like it's $497 and you get all these courses. And we're also doing workshops and things like that to help you implement these things. And so, you know, if one of these courses about how to build a podcast is 497 bucks, you get that. Like if you're going to buy that on its own, you get that plus you get all these other things. So um, it's on sale for one week only. And every year it's completely different courses. So if you don't get it like this year, you're not going to be able to get it again next year because it'll be brand new stuff. in. Fascinating stuff. Uh, well, I, I hope we can uh, cross paths at some time uh, when I, I hope to come to New York City and this year in 2018 and uh, you're only two hours away. So I, I, I hope our, I am. And I have one question for you before you get off here out of all, and yeah. I'm going to get you on my podcast. I'm going to ask you this there too, <laughs> but you've just, you've gone all the way through Africa. You've done the 54 countries and we talked about those hidden gems, right? That, that like I once go to Uruguay, Slovenia, and they lived up to it. Did you have a country? I'm going to ask two questions. One, did you have a country that you really wanted to get to that lived up to it? And did you have one that blew away your expectation? Huh. That's a good question. Like did Togo and Comoros, did they live up to it? Or were you like, eh, 
eh, these are okay. Well, I again, I didn't have really big expectations for Togo or Comoros. In fact, I really didn't know much about them. And they are nothing special, but then again, there's something special about going to some place that nobody knows about. Exactly. Yeah, that yep. kind of why you're interested in the Gambia. Right, right, right. Exactly. So, exactly why I'm so, interested in the Gambia, other than the. Right. The, the, the is exactly, another right. interesting part. Right. So let me, let's get back to your questions. You basically, you're wondering, is anybody, did they beat my expectations, blow me away? You know, Algeria, maybe. Okay. Algeria really did. And maybe it, it could be something, the fact that I came from, that was one of the f- only flights that I actually flew. Normally, I was over land. I was driving everywhere. I was the, one of the only places where I actually, it was near the end of the trip. I flew from Tanzania into Algeria. Now, because you're, when you're driving everywhere, you, the transitions, we talked about borders at the beginning of the podcast, but normally transitions go kind of slowly, slowly. Yes, you go across a border and some things can radically change, but in general, it's still kind of smooth. When you jump on a plane, all of a sudden you can really, it's like a time machine or a time warp or all sorts of stuff. And so that's what happened with Algeria is that I got there and I was just really blown away by Algeria. It's, it's clean. It's orderly. It's not, it's not uh, corrupt. Uh, I dealt a lot with the police. Um, it's a huge country. In fact, it's the biggest country in Africa. I, I learned that like two weeks ago. I was on some like trivia site and I was like, I never would have guessed that. You know, just from name recognition, you wouldn't guess that it's the largest, right? Yeah. And, and, and I, in fact, it, it actually won that award in 2011 when Sudan broke in two. Right. So before it was Sudan. That's the first country that came into my mind um, that, that kind of blew me away. And by the way, on a, on a side note, I was just thinking because I'm thinking of North Africa now. Egypt in so many ways disappointed me. Not so much the, the, the sites, of course, that the famous pyramids and all the other archaeological sites, but just that, 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 you know, when you think of the ancient Egyptians, you've got to imagine the most organized, amazing, got their shit together society on the planet. <laughs> to build what right. they did, you know, all the different amazing things. And you would think that maybe 1% of that would have translated down <laughs> through the generations. But really, Trickled down. nothing went through. <laughs> yeah. And the Egyptians, wonderful, nice people, wonderful food. But my God, they got their, their, their completely disorganized. All right, so Algeria, very neat. Yeah, I figured that I'm going to ask you again on my podcast, and we're going to get more into your whole trip, of course. But um, I wouldn't. It's not even a trip. I, that does it no justice to call <laughs> a five-year trek around Africa a trip. But um, very cool. I yeah. I, okay, Algeria. Nice. Good to know. Is last question then? I know. I know that you're the host here. But I people got to We got to shine a little bit of light on what you love, and then we could get off of here. But is there any country that now in your mind is like what Uruguay or in Slovenia were to me? Like you haven't been to, but for whatever reason you're like. I got to get there. Uh, kind of, what's that place called? Um, Vanat- Vanuatu or something? Vanuatu. The, the, where all the fat people live? Yeah, yeah, Vanuatu. They've got the fattest people on the planet. And they're in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Like, where do they get all their food to become so fat? They've got the highest diabetes around, apparently. So it's just a strange name of a country. It's, to me, it's going to kind of have that effect. So Vanuatu. Vanuatu. There we go. I don't even know how to well, pronounce it. And as someone with the initials F-A-T, I mean, it's just, <laughs> of course. you just got to get got to find the roots of, right. of where I yeah, come from. Yeah, you're going to find like your great grandmothers there or something like that. <laughs> um, very cool. Awesome. Um, 
yeah, this was a great podcast, Francis. I appreciate it, man. It was it was really cool to flip the mic around a little bit and be able to actually tell my story and kind of talk about everything that I've been able to do. So I appreciate it. Thank you so much. So to remind people uh, where people can find you. Yeah, if you want to find everything we're doing, I, the easiest place to go is extrapackofpeanuts.com. We, we'll, we'll link out to everything we do there. And then, of course, if you want the app that we just launched, that's on the App Store for, for iOS and also on Google Play Store for Android. That's just called Jetto, J-E-T-T-O. And then for me on social media, uh, Heather does a lot of social media, but if you want to follow us on Instagram or Twitter, um, you could just do at pack of peanuts. So not there's no extra to it it's just at pack of peanuts amazing to talk to you i love your enthusiasm i think that's what explains why your show is so successful i appreciate it and uh hopefully it won't take us uh another four years to reconnect because that's when we <laughs> last talked when you were i think in the middle of burkino faso at that point probably trying to get waiting to get your car fixed um <laughs> I, I think it was burkino faso but uh yeah hopefully we don't wait another four years and i appreciate uh, you having me on and always great to have another travel podcast out there man and that concludes this episode of the WanderLearn podcast, where we explore travel, technology, and transformation. If you'd like to see the show notes with links to what we talked about, or if you'd like to comment on the show, go to WanderLearn.com and click on the latest episode. Now, before you go, I just want to ask you for one small favor. Subscribe to the show, share it, review it, and send me lots of money. Seriously, although doing all those things would be extremely helpful, perhaps the best thing you could do would be to become one of my treasured patrons at patreon.com slash F, Tapon. F as in Francis, Tapon as my last name, which is T-A-P-O-N. Check out the remarkably generous rewards that I offer there. They are, without a doubt, the best rewards that you can find on Patreon. I'm not kidding. It's no joke. You can get rewards for as little as $1 a month. This show was edited by Rejoice Tapon. This is Francis Tapon encouraging you to wander and learn.